she's like, Rain, can you please come back? I can't teach two squadrons. And Rain's like, I didn't think it would be appropriate. Which, like, it you're right. Be. Stay away. <laughs> Good instinct for once in your fucking life. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is our second three-peat guest after the illustrious Teeny Howard, Sarah Century, Cerebro's official lesbian correspondent, who is here <laughs> with me today to talk about Xiangkoima, better known as Karma, the first lesbian character in the X-Men franchise, one of the original New Mutants created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller, weirdly. Yeah. In 1980s Marvel Team Up 100, and then spun off into the New Mutants book that Claremont launched with Bob McCloud. Before we dig in too deep, I want to acknowledge that we are obviously two white people talking about the most prominent Vietnamese character at Marvel. And on top of that, a character whose origin is very tied to the trauma of the Vietnam War. I would like to invite any Southeast Asian listeners to write in to cerebrocast at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on karma that you would like to share. I would be thrilled to read those on a future episode Sort of like how I asked for trans opinions on Mystique. If you're a physically disabled listener who has found Karma's journey with her prosthesis meaningful, I'd also love to hear from you about that. This character has so many complicated intersecting identities, and I want to make sure that all of those things are respected and honored. I'd also love, while we're at it, to recommend a new book that just came out. It's called The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nivo. That's N-G-H-I-V-O. She's a queer Vietnamese author, and the book is a supernatural retelling of The Great Gatsby that reimagines Jordan Baker as a queer Vietnamese adoptee. My friend Roshi Chan edited it for Tor.com, and it's fucking awesome. So go pick that up if you're interested in another story about a queer Vietnamese woman. This one, written by a queer Vietnamese woman, which obviously none of Karma's adventures have been. So with that, let's dig in. This is a character who I really, really, really love. The problem <laughs> with talking about karma is that karma has been around now for 41 years uh -huh. and has had maybe two good stories, three maybe ever, including the one happening literally right now. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I mean, you know, we're going to we're going to get into it. But the problem with karma is that she is an incredible character who has never really been allowed to flourish because not many writers care about her at all. I would say the only writers who've ever actually been invested in Sean, as she's called, it's, well, like, just to start, for starters, yes. her name Let's is- Let's talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> so, for starters, her name is Xian Koi Ma. I did a lot of research on Vietnamese names for this episode, and I'm sure I'm going to get stuff super wrong. But here's the bottom line. Xi'an is a city in China. It is not Vietnamese to begin with. It's also not a name that people have, as far as I know. It's certainly not a name that Vietnamese people have because the sh sound does not exist in Vietnamese. So there's and that. Then <laughs> she goes by Shan, pronounced like Sean the name, but I try yeah. to say like ah vowels so that you distinguish from Banshee to Americans, which like, that's fine. Listen, my brother-in-law is Chinese and has the name Max and we all call him Max because he's like, please don't even attempt to pronounce my Chinese name. <laughs> 
it's painful to hear. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, love that for us. We're good. We're good to go. So she she goes by Shan, S-H-A-N, with her friends. Xi'an is X-I apostrophe A-N. Neither is a Vietnamese name. Then you have Koi Ma, which Koi and Ma are both given names, not surnames, is my mm-hmm. understanding. It's like a Cho Chang moment, kind of. But also... So Ma should come first, right? So her name should be Ma Shang Koi. But then it seems that Koi is not a middle name because her brother <laughs> is Tran Koi Ma and her sister and brother who are little, who she takes care of, are Leon Koi Ma and Nga Koi Ma. So, so clearly the full surname is Koi Ma, which doesn't really make sense unless you interpret it as a middle name in which case it would be Ma Koi Shan, and the Koi could maybe be her mother's maiden name, which I always assumed was the case because their uncle is General Wenyak Koi. Mm-hmm. He's called General Koi by everyone. So I assumed he was their mother's brother. But then in the Marjorie Lu run on Astonishing, not only is General Koi established to be her father's brother, but... Her illegitimate half-sister is identified as Dao Koi Ma, despite having a different mother. Yeah. So. Question mark, right? It's a complete fucking mess. <laughs> My headcanon essentially is that the Marjorie Lou bit about her father, given that everything in the Marjorie Lou story does not scan with the earlier karma stories it just doesn't Mm, at all it is wild yeah it's a good story and i like it and as before we got into the name digression i was saying there are three writers who i think have ever given a shit about karma and they're chris claremont zeb wells and marjorie lou and now vita ayala is doing it right now but we're only a few issues in i mean like historically only three writers have ever tried to do anything with this character particularly Mm -hmm. even if you look at de philippus and weir's run She's really just there to be Danny's friend. That's right. It's not really ever about her. My sort of take on the family, I like to think that General Koi is her mother's brother and that Koi is her mother's maiden name and that they all have Koi as a middle name and that we should just look at Tao Koi Ma as a mistake. (laughs) Not the character, because I kind of liked the character and I think they should resurrect her on Krakoa, which we'll get into. (laughs) Right. She and Adrian Frost could get up into like some real shenanigans together. You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't that be fun? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's already, we're starting the Real Housewives of Krakoa. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a brutal version of the Real Housewives of Krakoa. That's like wildly, yeah, exactly. Mixed with like the real evil Housewives of Krakoa. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Celine gets to join, right? Like, yeah. Actually, I would love to see Dao Koima, aka Susan Hachi, pop up in X Corp, actually. I think that would be Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Oh, I was just also going to note, right, that karma isn't that, that's like, doesn't have much to do with Vietnam (laughs) either. Right. That part of Hinduism and then also sometimes Buddhism, right? But like also. Yeah. What's weird is there's lots of like Taoist stuff with Mm -hmm. Shan, except Shan is Catholic. So she's not religiously any of that. You know, she's like a devout Catholic. Right. So the other problem with Sean, and we'll just get this out of the way, is that she is the character besides Colossus. And I would argue actually more than Colossus, most fucked by the sliding timescale. Because 
Sean's backstory is tied explicitly to the Vietnam War. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And not only that, because you could say it was a different conflict or whatever. They, they have the whole Siang Kong War thing. But her dad dies in the fall of Saigon, right? Like, Until Marjorie Lou retcons it. But yes, it's the fall of Saigon. Right. And then also, though, she's an upper class Vietnamese girl who speaks French and is Catholic. It's like a very specific colonial mm-hmm. moment. I'm not a Vietnam expert. I'm just saying, like, she's very much a product of the French colonial stranglehold on Vietnam. Right. And we're now many years removed from that, decades removed from it. And also the uh, her fleeing, her family fleeing from Vietnam was directly connected to, like, the, the boat people, right? Yeah, they fled, like, they're where... boat refugees. They fled the Viet Cong. Yeah, which is, like, 100% something where it's, like, that definitely happened between... <laughs> Right. No, we know literally exactly when it happened. Yeah. I mean, the boat people, as they're called, it sounds like really dehumanizing. It honestly does. Those refugees, it's a specific crisis, right? It's like 1975. Like we know exactly when that was. Caused by the fall of Saigon and then before that, the Vietnam War, right? I think there's something with like U.S. complicity, right? Right. And I think that Claremont's intention was to do with her what he was doing with Colossus, which was to show these people are foreign to us and we think of them as foreign because we were at war or whatever, but they're human beings, yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? Like a very noble concept. She is not a communist, unlike Colossus. Her father is a South Vietnamese colonel. And when South Vietnam falls, they are pushed out. And even though they have money, it's a whole mess and they end up on the boat despite that and in the original story her parents are both killed on the boat in the marjorie lou story her father got them on the boat but didn't join them so that's one of the many retcons in that story that we'll get to when we get there Mm -hmm. i feel like the best way to handle karma is sort of i don't know if you listened to the skids episode i did with jordan bloom oh yeah love skids uh well i loved that episode because it was like why not let's just talk for two and a half (laughs) hours about skids but i tend to think that with these characters whose appearances are more sporadic as opposed to like we've previously done gene and rachel who are mainstays sort Mm, of of mm -hmm. the franchise I think that the best thing to really do is just kind of power through chronologically and talk about stuff, you know? Yeah. So we'll do that. But first, I want to welcome you back to the pod. Yes. And ask you about your relationship to karma. Why you, I mean, you know, there's an obvious reason to care about this character, obviously. (laughs) But I'd love to hear your thoughts on her because I know that you're a big fan. Oh, yes. I would love to talk about it. My first time of reading karma was uh, the X-475 when she appears as still her big coming out party, but she's, yeah, it's her coming out party, right? Which is so funny because I think even on the Wikipedia, it calls it a desert rave. No, it's Burning Man. It's Burning Man. (laughs) And she's there with my girlfriends, meaning like my friends. But the implication I get is that they're like a poly triad. Oh, yeah, of course. If anything, they're there trying to get her to hook up with somebody. like Or I, with like, them. Like, it's like, come with, with us to Burning Man. We're just going to hang. Like Yeah, I feel that she's way. she's got a pink crew cut. And it's uh-huh. like a very different, dramatically different look from how she's looked before. And she never looks that way again, actually. Yeah, she it is really hot. So I get it. Like, she's wearing her, like, hip huggers, which now is, you know 
if you draw hip huggers on a character in 2021, you get a fine. Um, yeah. In the mail, you owe the state $250. <laughs> but then it was fine, I guess. Um, and yeah, like I said, it was a desert. So I, I get that everybody was way naked or right. But um, yeah, I think that karma in that issue appears what maybe three panels or something and then they're like yeah maybe she's like a lesbian now she's gone she shows up and makes one joke about being gay to danny of all yeah. people oh yeah i mean when you read it i think she's hitting on danny right i mean like that's the i'm gonna go with it yeah to open just like to throw the gauntlet at the beginning i am a hardcore danny and sean shipper because they could so easily be the greatest love story of our time. (laughs) Come on. So easily could be a flawless couple. Like they are exactly right. They are already a power couple. They just don't make out on panel yet. But I feel like we're going there in the current run. It seems to me that that's what we're building to. I think about it every day. I bet you do. I'm like, I hope that they're doing okay. I hope that they are. I mean, this most recent issue, New Mutants 18, with Sean's Crucible story, these bitches gay. Like, Mm -hmm. Harold, they're lesbians. (laughs) I think that it's been building for the whole run of Ayala's New Mutants so far. It seems very clear to me that that's like a plot that we're meant to be paying attention to. I can only hope. I can only hope. I mean, you know, with the (laughs) X-Men, like sometimes it takes you 30 years to get something. So you never know. But I feel like we're on the precipice of all of these Claremont characters who were coded as queer finally getting a chance to do it. That's what it feels like to me. But we're not quite there yet. So whenever the House of Mouse allows Danny and Karma to get it on, I will be leading the ticker tape parade. And I feel like it's coming. I just, I do feel like it's coming. And I feel like a parade will just spontaneously break out. Yeah. Um, I think that that will happen. So you first saw her in that expert issue, the John Francis Moore road trip era, which is her first appearance there after like she had been gone for a very long time. Forever. And then she was gone again. Well, Skids actually, it's funny. Skids does the same thing. She's yeah. gone for ages after the fall of Avalon and then she Shows pops up, up in the road, road trip, trip arc yeah. <laughs> and then she's gone again until Extreme X-Men. And actually Sean is gone again after the road trip until mechanics so it's yeah, Claremont that in both cases go? I guess brings that the characters back out. um yeah it was like after that I realized I realized that she had been a character from back in the day right because I had mm-hmm. read like kind of I think Senkowicz era New Mutants and I hadn't yeah. read all of it so I went all the way back to the beginning after that well right because the thing about Sean is she's an original New Mutant and we always say she's actually the leader of the New Mutants when the team mm-hmm. debuts but She's apparently killed off in issue six mm-hmm. and doesn't come back until way, 29. way later. Yeah. yeah. In issue 29, where she's possessed by the Shadow King. And then she just kind of hangs around in the background after that for a long time, for the most part. That's a thing. I thought that it was, uh, I thought that she is done after the Shadow King thing and was gone. And then I was like, oh no, she's just completely underutilized in the yeah. background for like 20 issues. Right. And then in Claremont's last issue on the book, 54, he writes her out. 
mm-hmm. because he takes her with him to the Wolverine solo where she does nothing. It's just like give me she's a break. in that like first arc and you can tell that like something is brewing there, but it doesn't. It peters out in 1989 and then he stops writing that book and then Joe Duffy ends up using her briefly in another Wolverine arc. But after briefly. that, she's basically done. And it's still just, I mean, it's Madripoor stuff. So it's like, what what characterization ever happens in Madripoor stories? Like, yeah, I mean, we'll get always, there. I, I Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's always just patch stuff. And I'm like, well. Oh. The problem I would say with karma's class like she is a character that claremont clearly loved a lot but i don't think he ever found something for her to do sure and she also is tied up in the two i've mentioned this in the podcast before i am a chris claremont devotee i love the claremont run i love it so much it like physically pains me that's why i have this stupid podcast (laughs) there are two major problems with the claremont run generally speaking in terms of its politics and i would say that one of them is claremont's propensity for orientalism and one of them is claremont's obvious discomfort with fat people and fat bodies Mm -hmm. fat characters are invariably evil or it's a symbol of corruption or something like that and when karma is possessed by the shadow king he has her for a long time under his control and she is very obese by the time the new mutants find her and that storyline is is just it's rough it is all the beautiful bill sinkevich art in the world can't make it not a rough storyline and i just want to like blanket trigger warn right now for listeners for like we're going to be talking about body politics and weight and weight loss and all of that in this episode because it's impossible not to with this character yeah we are also going to be talking about rape in this episode because it's impossible it's extremely central to the character and her origins so i just want to get out in front of that because i don't want anybody to be taken by surprise and so because she's tied up in those two things like claremont's obsession with asia as like a cool thing and also his body politics that have not aged particularly well and that were upsetting at the time, honestly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I think that a lot of people sort of tossed her out because she was a character with baggage. Yeah. Isn't that unfortunate? Because she is such an interesting character. Also, I think that there's something to be said about that first arc of New Mutants. I love her role in that, but Mm -hmm. I also think isn't it so interesting that we never really would have seen Sam and Danny become the leaders, right? Well, I think that's why she gets written out. She gets written out. So it's almost like they choose those two characters instead of her almost in a way. And I always think about that because I also think that that could have worked still, you know? I Mm -hmm. think that that could have still worked. I get why they did it for narrative reasons, but then I'm also like come on though like you could have made it it could have happened i think what happened basically is like claremont creates sean in this marvel team-up story he does with frank miller in 1980 two years later when he and bob mcleod do new mutants he brings her back but she's in this sort of curious role because she's 19 right Mm -hmm. so she and moira and xavier like gather the new mutants together And Xavier hires her to work at the Institute and to mentor and lead the New Mutants team. So even though she's a student 
at Xavier's. She's also like a staff member. She's in this sort of liminal position from the very beginning. And I think that it was an awkward position for her to be in as the book became so clearly about coming of age when she already is an adult. Right. Who has had tons of horrible things happen. I mean, a lot of the new mutants had, but... Yeah, but in the very first issue of The Ongoing, Danny accidentally pulls Sean's memory of being raped out of her head. Yeah. It's, like, very clear that this is, like, the worst thing Danny's ever seen. And Sean feels very violated by it. Attacks her. And attacks her and then, you know, understands it was an accident, but their relationship gets off on a complicated foot to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. But also, she's just very much set apart from the others. And I think that Danny was Claremont's protagonist at first, very clearly. I think Ileana becomes the other protagonist very, very quickly. But it's sort of the two of them, I think, who lead that book through the Claremont run. Mm -hmm. Ileana doesn't come in until after Sean is gone. Right. And Danny, I think that he just decided this is the character who really is. I mean, I've said this before. I think that the way he writes Danny is sort of as a synthesis of Scott and Aurora's leadership styles and skills. Mm -hmm. She's yeah. sort of like the great potential leader of the next generation. But there was no way to test her as a leader if Sean was leading the team. So he writes Sean out. Mm -hmm, which is not fair. <laughs> no, and it also was to set up the Shadow King, who yeah. was Claremont's big bad. I mean, that's the thing we have to remember because it never came to fruition because of the moment Claremont was pushed out. But the intention was like the Shadow King founded the Hellfire Club. The Shadow mm -hmm. King's going to kill Xavier. The Shadow King's behind everything. He was like the great big bad at the end of the story of like the 16 year arc. And it's Sean who really is used to introduce that character. And again, because it's like she's a character Claremont was invested in. And what he tends to do with the characters he's invested in is tie them to his central villains and have weird things happen to their bodies that they can't control because that's his like ruling obsession, right? Yes. And especially whenever it comes to karma, right? I feel like for a character who's, you know, whole power set is around, you know, mind control right. and body control. It's so interesting that she herself has been like taken out of her own control so many times throughout her history. Yeah, she loses bodily autonomy all the time, which is an interesting counterpoint to the fact that her power is to take away the bodily autonomy of others. And I think that there's something to that because I think that that might give her a lot of information on how to not be a complete scumbag while doing yeah. that, I guess. So I, I would like for them to talk a little bit more about that, right? Because there is something a little bit weird about her power, just to get it Oh, off. absolutely. On the very beginning, you're just kind of like, possession powers? I don't know if that's chill. And then also even in that first appearance. Well, know, right. I was going to say, let's go back to the very first appearance, because I really like that story, but it is weird to read it now. It is, yeah. And I do like that story. I think that when Sean possesses Spider-Man that is such an interesting character beat for both of them he's mm -hmm. fighting it so hard that he almost dies <laughs> and then uh she's in her mind I can't say I wouldn't do the same if I were in his right. position and 
So I think that there's something even from those first pages where we're seeing a character who has a pretty uncomfortable power set kind of already from the very beginning grappling with it a little bit. Yeah, and that's made manifest in her brother Tran, right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I'm looking at the back cover right now of the New Mutants omnibus that they put out last year. This is a great omnibus. I recommend it if you're in the omnibus game. It collects a little over half of Claremont's full run on the title, but it opens with that Marvel team-up story, which is fascinating because it's like, before you can get to the New Mutants, you have to read this Marvel team-up story with Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. (laughs) What is this? Mm -hmm. And then after that, you get Uncanny 160 because that sets up Ilyana stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into the New Mutants graphic novel. And if you look at the copy on the back, it says, Join Karma, Cannonball, Wolfsbane, Sunspot, Daniel, Moonstar, Magma, and Magic as they're forced to grow up fast, yada, 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 yada. Like, her name is first, mm-hmm. which is the first time that's ever happened. Yes. But it's because the book opens with her. And then you look at this and you're like, but she's not in most of it. Yeah, she's really not in Right, because she gets it. killed off in six and then doesn't come back until 29 and all i remember from that first run with her even having just read back through it is like there's uh, some conversation about what her past is and then of course there's that scene with danny and there's like a little bit i think of her being a little bit older sistery to a couple characters yeah and then she's gone. I mean, that's there's not too much to hold on to even there, right? Her death is the trauma that brings the team together. Yeah. They're kind of a hodgepodge assemblage of people. Like the idea of Roberto and Rain like getting along. You know what I like it's like mm-hmm. that's part of the point, right? As you throw different personality types into a group. Sean's apparent death is the thing that really unites them all cuz they're all devastated by it. But I don't know that the reader is because they haven't really gotten to know her. And unless they've read that Marvel team-up issue, I don't think they're particularly invested in her. The Marvel team-up issue, let's just start there. It's a really interesting story. As you noted, it involves her possessing Spider-Man because her uncle, General Koi, has kidnapped her younger siblings, Leung and Nga, who she is the guardian of in New York after the rest of their family was killed. She possesses Spider-Man because General Koi is threatening her and she wants to get her siblings back, but she only knows of Spider-Man through J. Jonah Jameson's editorials in the Daily Bugle. So she's like, Spider-Man's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. I'll take over his mind and force him to save my siblings. She justifies it in her head by being like, I'm only doing this to a bad person because we see in her backstory that she and her twin brother, clearly twins run in the family, her twin brother Tran has the same exact power as her. But while she discovered it and used it to save his life when a Viet Cong soldier tried to kill him, Tran then immediately used the power himself and made the soldier shoot himself in the head and was thrilled by it and was like, look at this power. We can do these things. And Sean's like, what the, f- you can't just kill people. Yeah. And he's like, yes, I can. He was going to kill me. (laughs) There's a symbolic thing set up here where they represent the yin-yang, right? Like she is the yin, the feminine element, and he is the masculine element. But they're sort of one being is almost the implication. They have the same power. They were born as twins. It's actually very Charles and Cassandra in that way. The difference between them is their moral dimension. And so 
Shan hides her power, but Tran goes to their uncle, General Win Yokoi, who is a bad dude, and shows off the power and impresses the general. And so he wants them to work for him. Because he's the worst. Yeah. And it's notable in this story, Shan refers to her father as an honest and good man and says that's mm-hmm. why he was given bad assignments by the government because he wasn't corrupt and like this, that, and the other thing. And she explicitly says that he was on the boat with them and died on the boat Mm -hmm. when the pirates from Thailand attacked the boat. So Tran goes to work for the general. The general is going to arrange to get everybody else out of Saigon, but doesn't manage to in the confusion. So Tran is separated from them before they're on the boat. Once they're on the boat, The pirates attack. They kill her father. It's not said explicitly in this issue, but it's very heavily implied. You understand what happened, that they raped her mother and then her. Her mother died the day that the U.S. Navy arrived to rescue them because they were all like starving on the boat. Yeah. So she was left alone with her siblings who are little. They wound up in New York and she's been there ever since i mean this is now 1980 so i guess we're supposed to assume let's say she was like 15 on the boat and now she's roughly 18 she's taking care of them she has been helped by a missionary father bowen who she had met in vietnam who has a church in new york she had known him well there she trusts him she goes to him for help he's actually dagger's uncle of cloak and dagger but that's like not important in the story yeah it's just part of like the wider marvel new york where like everybody's connected in some way but that (laughs) character is not someone you really have to worry about he does take care of leung when karma apparently dies like he becomes their guardian where are Liang and Nga is like the big thing with oh my God. <laughs> this character. So we'll keep track. Don't worry. But anyway, she's taking care of them in New York. She's trying to like get a job and care for them or whatever. They've been now kidnapped by her uncle because her uncle is trying to blackmail Sean into coming to work for him like Tran does. She possesses Spider-Man. Tran, because he's been using the power for a lot longer than she has and doesn't have any qualms about manipulating people, possesses the entire Fantastic Four which is kind of a fun feat moment, I guess, because mm-hmm. Sean's like, wow, I really don't know what I'm doing. He's yeah. much better at this than I am. That fight rules. It's really It's fun. really cool. But at the end, wearing a little robe with a yin-yang on it, in case you didn't get it, she um, uses an aspect of her power that's never quite been explained, but is probably connected to them being twins, to psychically absorb his entire essence and kill him by making him part of her. And he begs her for mercy and she's like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is That's cool. It's a cool first moment. appearance. <laughs> yeah, this is her first appearance. The story is called Karma. She possesses people. That's the name of the story. Hilarious. She takes the name Karma because she's essentially accepting all of the bad things Tran did into herself as well. Like she feels responsible for everything their family has done. She's done good things, Tran's done bad things, they have good and bad karma, she's going to balance it out, is essentially the idea. The character then just doesn't do anything until she pops up in graphic novel number four, The New Mutants, which introduces the rest of the characters and the team. 
I sort of mentioned already, she's like Moira and Charles's assistant, essentially. She becomes the secretary at the school. Reed Richards refers her to Charles, is my recollection. She's like, I appreciate that you've helped me, but like, I need to support my family. I'm the only person taking care of my siblings. She's established early in this run to be 19, which makes her significantly older than some of the other characters. Sam and Danny are in the middle. I forget, like, I think they're 16, maybe. Like 17, I thought. 16, 17-ish, yeah. It's notable because it makes her the same age as Colossus, who is also established at the same time to be 19, because that's when he's dating Kitty. Mm, mm -hmm. Like, that's a good evocation of how awkward her positioning in the team is from the beginning. Like, Colossus is on the X-Men. Rachel, who's also about 18, 19, also just joins the X-Men when she shows up. Sean is kind of trapped in this middle zone. It's an awkward fit. And, you know, he gets rid of her pretty quickly. In that first story, she mostly just is around helping Charles and Moira. The thing about the original New Mutants team that is pretty obvious is that unlike the X-Men at the time, but like Kitty Pride, they all have a very situational sort of specific power. Sean is a telepath, but all she can really do is mind control, which all the other telepaths can do in addition to doing like 500 other things. <laughs> She has a really cool power signature, right? It's like, so cool. This sort of blocky rad. pink thing that only she has and that she has had from her very first appearance. Yeah, she still has it, right? Like a yeah. little bit. Uh, oh, like absolutely changed, still. coloring stuff has changed a little bit. It's like bit, very but... much like a magenta, like strong pink thing now, but it's been magenta since the 80s. Yeah. It's really cool looking. What makes me laugh is like, we're not supposed to think that those power signatures are visible to the human eye. Those are for the reader. But now she's wearing an outfit to the Hellfire Gala inspired by her power signature. Like it's like <laughs> a big blocky pink coat. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, well, I guess other telepaths can see it maybe. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> but anyway, she is much like the others. She has this very specific situational power. When she possesses other people, her own body is vulnerable like she can control herself she doesn't leave her own body but her focus is not on herself she's really seeing out of the eyes of the other person and she has to be very careful about what she does with her body because if someone shoots her in the head she's done you know what i mean like it's mm -hmm. a very it's a very specific power much like rain being a dog sometimes or Danny <laughs> making illusions of things you're scared of or Sam shooting in one direction very fast. But they but that's it. They got to develop their stuff and, and then she like, doesn't get a chance to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We never get to see the arc. Like that's the thing that's so frustrating about this character is because we get all of the awkward bad moments we, that we get with all of the new mutants where you're just like there's always a little little time period with each one of these kids where you're just kind of like wait what that's what's happening here read. right like, rain dates a high schooler like sam like <sighs> becomes a jerk for a while <laughs> like sean's at least back in the picture by the time rain is dating a high school i mean like th this is the thing about that we're in defilippus run there's stuff about it that's really good and then that rain and elixir plot is so repulsive to me that it just makes the whole thing kind of unreadable. Even when she shows up and she's like, yeah, so what? I'm sexy now. <laughs> I, was like, I know. What are you doing? <laughs> like, I was annoyed with that right. to begin with because like, so it's the same thing that they did with karma, right? To some extent that John Francis Moore does with Sean at Burning Man is it's like, <laughs> 
the sort of demure Catholic girl from the 80s. Now I'm a punk lesbian. And you're like, okay, love that for you. With Rain, <laughs> though, it's like the demure Catholic girl who we've known and followed very closely. Yeah. For 20 has years. Has been here the whole time. Has been yeah. here the whole time. And now also just suddenly is like, I'm on a motorbike and I love to fuck. And you're like, <laughs> I don't get this. This seems weird and upsetting. And um, they also keep stressing that she's eight, 19, I think. Oh, man. So that it's like Elixir 16 is my recollection. <sighs> and they start getting close before she's assigned to teach. Like They go out of their way to try and make it okay. That's right. They do, huh? I forget about that a little bit. Yeah, like they even <laughs> like, like she even is like, we never had sex. And I don't believe her because. Yeah, first of all. She says that to Danny, who she has reason to lie to. Everybody would lie to Danny. Yeah. <laughs> Danny is like the most perfect morality of all time. Like Particularly when the guy in question is Danny's like adopted oh, ward. Because yeah. Danny becomes yeah, yeah, his yeah. legal guardian. I forgot about that too. Yeah. Oh my God. But so they keep stressing that she's 18, which is a big problem because it de-ages the whole rest of the new mutants significantly oh, right? Yeah. because that means like, like danny's so, like 20 so y'all just left the whole class in charge like there's a 20 year old just watching over all these like kids like. exactly that means danny is 20 and sean is like 22 which doesn't yeah. scan for me now that scans with sean graduating from college at the beginning of that storyline but i had always assumed like in mechanics that Sean went back to college after, I don't know, being possessed by the Shadow King for a while. Like, you know, like, <laughs> and it's where you could, she could probably like actually get laid, I guess, because that's not happening on the X-Men, right? No. Like <laughs> but like in mechanics, she and Kitty are both there. And she is, as I pointed out, five years older than Kitty. So my feeling was she didn't go to college because she was taking care of her siblings and working and then was possessed and then was working for her evil uncle. And I hope had a girlfriend also. Um, One hope. Somewhere in that. One hope. Somewhere along the way. I mean, I assume. Well, she went to Burning Man (laughs) with those girls. That's true. That's the thing is, I think she went to college after the Burning Man story. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So she's not 22. She should be like at least 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. But so Rain can't be. 18. The story Rain bad. can't date a teenager. Let's just that's let's just I'm say just like gonna say yeah. That's the thing is like can't. whether or not it's legal, whether or not she was his teacher, it's just disgusting and inappropriate. And it, I I still to this day honestly can't believe they published it, and it I think broke the character eternally. Badly, yeah. That was I don't like think the character has ever time. recovered from that storyline because <sighs> that sends her directly into Peter David X Factor investigations. <laughs> And then into Kyo's X-Force. Mm-hmm. And then back to Peter David at X-Factor Investigations when she's pregnant. Uh-huh. So. God. <laughs> Times two. <laughs> yeah. Like literally just a nightmare. So. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've gotten ahead of ourselves as we often do on this podcast. So, so to go back, she dies in an explosion apparently in New Mutant 6. This is right after she has promised her uncle that if he will help the New Mutants, she will be essentially his slave for a year. Like she'll work for him for free and do whatever nefarious things he wants mm-hmm. if he'll help them. All of the New Mutants are like, Sean, you can't. And she's like, I will do whatever I must to help my friends, you know, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. because he is in need of a new evil telepath because she killed her brother, right? So there's <laughs> like, you know, and this is something that's not really explored in those classic stories, but her brother is in her head. 
Now, yeah. So what's that like? <laughs> there is an implication that it's maybe impacted her personality or something. You know, we don't really quite know. Oh, I know. I know. What a terrible thing to just drop on us and then be And like, then never oh, deal well. with because she's not in the book anymore. Like, it's really, there's so much to this character. And that's why this recent New Mutants 18 was so exciting because it was like, we're going to get Tran out of there. And they also mentioned that he's been there like that the whole time that was yeah. like at least acknowledged in that story yeah you know? it's like that and new mutants dead souls which is good but not for shan I, yeah she's like not even in it right no like, because she's possessed <laughs> by tram the whole time because he's taking control of their like gestalt mind you know yeah she spends the whole time secretly plotting against them because trans in control of her she's the villain mm-hmm. so which is just like and then on. it ends on a cliffhanger because Rosenberg didn't really get to finish the storyline. Yeah, it does just kind of totally peter out. <laughs> and then in the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hick, like truly, it's just one of those like, <laughs> don't worry about it. We'll get there in the character file. Yeah, you'll be listen, you'll be reading, and then something else is happening all of a sudden, and yeah. everything's changed, and that happens in the X Men <laughs> sometimes. Exactly. So she apparently dies in an explosion. They're all very sad because. No one person can replace karma in our hearts. Danny and Sam are made co-leaders of the new team because they're younger. And it's sort of this rivalry between them as to who's going to be the leader. But it's never that contentious. Like, they, yeah. like, they get along for the most part. They're, they're good co-leaders and they work together, I'd say, at least as well as, like, the... Captain America and the Wasp leading the Avengers for that like little stint. But sure, like a young yeah. Version of that, right? So I think that it's pretty good. I think that they work together. In this right. case, Danny is Captain America and Sam is the Wasp. Absolutely. To be clear. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So that is that for a while. Then we get to a mini series that I have mentioned on the pod before in the Dazzler episode with Evan Narcisse, Beauty and the Beast by Anne Nascenti, which Karma does not appear in, but it features an underground gladiatorial ring where mutants are drugged and forced to fight each other. <laughs> this is all oh, in Los Angeles. Man. It's an insane yeah, mini series. It would happen in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's thing, very right? LA. It makes total yeah. sense. It's like if you said that anywhere else, it's like, are you sure? And then it's like, L.A., okay, yeah, you're right. All right. right. I, I can see that. By the end of Beauty and the Beast, Annie Nascenti has not really established, like, who runs that whole operation. It's just sort of a means <laughs> to the end for, like, Allie and Hank to have an adventure. Yeah. It's a cute adventure. Yeah, it's cute. And it's weird that they hook up because <laughs> so we have to weird. think about that now. <laughs> and like, her type. Like, I'm just like, you're really kind of going Well, the fact that she right goes now. from Warren to Hank, it's like... And then to Longshot. So it's like the the most beautiful yeah. Hank. But if you <laughs> think about beautiful. it, if she had gone to X Factor, as had been proposed, that was one mm -hmm. of the alternatives instead of bringing back Jean. She actually does, like, you could have done easily a love triangle between her and Warren and Hank because they had oh this pre-existing connection. This is the love triangle I want. <laughs> like, that would have been interesting, I right? would have liked that. <laughs> But twas not to be. No. I would say like poor Candy, but she got written out and killed off real quick anyway. <laughs> oh, so. yeah. Let's do a Candy Southern episode because I got plenty to say about that. <laughs> do you? Because I'm a Candy Southern stamp. Whoa. Same. <laughs> okay. I'm actually, you're now officially booked for your fourth episode. It's going to be yes. you and me talking about Candy yes. Southern. And we're just going to do it. We're just going to do yes. it. People are going to deal with a long episode about because the angel episode already features like a 30 minute digression on candy that's right southern. yes i would kill to write a marvel snapshots candy southern to oh be my god honest like yes I, like i 
If anybody's listening, call me. I have a lot of thoughts about Candace Southern called Candy. Yes. yes, To me, to me, one of the most egregious fridged women in all of comics. I swear. Oh, my God. I think it doesn't get talked about because a woman did it because Louise Simonson did it. I feel like we don't. It's not like in the discourse, but I find her way more troubling in terms of that trope than almost any other character I can think of. It does bum me out. It really does. Yeah. Because she was a real big, like, she leads the Defenders. She rules. She does I mean, rules. quite honestly, it's for me, it's her and Sue Dibney, who was sort of the Candy mm-hmm. Southern of DC mm-hmm. and who they yeah. did something very similar to. Oh, they did. You're right. So ah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I have a whole like thesis about okay. Candy Southern and well, Sue Dibney. We'll get into right. it someday. Looking forward to it. I would say let's do that in October because I would guarantee you that Candy Southern is a Libra. <laughs> that is tracks to me (laughs) and i'm not booked in october right now so i'm leaving all this in by the way so i hope that the listeners are getting excited about this this plan that we're making all the candy southern fans in the world (laughs) listen our time it's time (laughs) candy hive rise up we're gonna gonna, well i was i said about this episode i was like all the little masters should get excited (laughs) i'll have to think of like a a stand-up name for candy Oh, wow. Yeah. But I'm just like, I want candy. Southern. Yes. Warren Worthington's first love. <laughs> the human power behind his mutant throne. The I have, only oh God, person I fucking... who like, I mean, honestly, I feel like their relationship, Warren was not there yet, but it's on him, you know? like Yeah. I mean, and you know, like, we don't have to talk about John Byrne because. We don't. We don't have to talk about John Byrne, <laughs> but. I will say, like, X-Men The Hidden Years is iconic to me purely because of Candy in it. Yep, She's the so content. great in that fucking book. And it's after Wheezy had killed her off. So it feels like John Byrne was like, wasn't she fun, though? You know, like, let's, <laughs> let's make you feel even more upset that she got brutally murdered. I loved her. She reminds me of Silver St. Cloud from the Batman comics. Oh, my right? God. I also love Silver St. Cloud. Yes. <laughs> Didn't Kevin Smith kill off Silver St. Cloud? I don't even remember. God. I think that she died more than once. It's like, that's like a character that they just can't help but fridge, right? No, like, yeah. they, they're obsessed. <laughs> like, you can't get them to She's stop. She's too perfect for Bruce, so you have to kill her. That's the I problem. I swear, yeah. She has that problem that certain girlfriend characters have where you would just retire. Yeah, you know? exactly. You'd be like, I'm gonna just go home, hang out with Silver, St. Cloud. She's cool and way more interesting than like... Than like fighting the Riddler, right? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, going back to a character <laughs> who's never had a girlfriend. Exactly. Let's talk about that, <laughs> right? Here we go, Pride. <laughs> I know. Like, we're opening the Pride Month with a character who's never been allowed to fuck. Actually, we saw her in bed with a woman we once saw her in bed. as a sight gag when all the telepaths get summoned. And it's like, Karma was about to eat some puss, but now she's been summoned <laughs> to the war room. LOL, queer people do not get to have sex ever. <laughs> and it's just like, She's okay. never kissed a girl on panel. Right. Ever. She has held hands with Danny. <laughs> she sure has. And she and Kate almost kiss in mechanics. I swear to God, there was, I'm, okay, so I'm going to say mechanics, they had sex. I know that it doesn't fit. No, they 1000% had sex. We'll get there when we get to mechanics because they absolutely had sex. Kitty and Sean have fucked. It's very clear. We'll get into it later. But (laughs) (laughs) before we get there, to go back to Beauty and the Beast by Annie Nascenti. Oh, yes. 
After Beauty and the Beast, Claremont picks up the L.A. gladiatorial ring plot in his New Mutants run. And it turns out that the gladiatorial ring is led by the Shadow King. (laughs) Yeah. He is controlling everybody. It's his evil scheme. And he's doing it in the body of Shan. The reason she disappeared is because he... Had, and this is actually set up in the initial New Mutant story. This is like a masterful... We talk about how Claremont drops things in and then just picks them up years later. This is yeah. one of those cases where right before the explosion where she apparently dies, she's contacted by some kind of astral presence. Mm-hmm. The Shadow King found her, was like, ooh, this is a telepath with a lot of potential who I'm going to take over her body. And so when the New Mutants find her again, it is because she is now the evil leader of this gladiatorial circuit. <laughs> Which is funny, it just as if as you say it, right? Like, if, yeah. if you look at only the sentence that you just said, it's like, okay, that kind of rules. Yeah, it does. The problem, unfortunately, <laughs> is that she's also now about 500 pounds. Right, yeah. So they use that. They're all horrified that Sean has betrayed them, but also like horrified because she's a grotesque fat person now. Right. Which is like so messed up because it's uh, even even just like the whole way the story goes. I think that she does really shine in this story. And yeah, she also, does. I think it's cool for her to be fat. Like if that's her <sighs> so, life. Yeah, well, I see. I have a complicated I don't know. I have very complicated feelings about this character. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's like it is complicated because it's like something that somebody else did to her in a weird way. But it's like that's not what happens in life, you know. So it's like the the connotations are just so off and strange and kind of unsettling to begin with. Yeah, and like what ends up happening is she manages to free herself on the astral plane and defeat Farouk, which rules, which is a very very cool scene. That fight rules. Yeah. Yeah, her astral form is her thin self in her new mutants uniform. But here's the thing. Again, it's like that's who she is, right? Like right. I, I, it would be one thing if this was a fat character, but she wasn't. Farouk has like a binge eating problem and has made her fat like him because he took over her body. So in the astral plane, she looks like the self that she conceptualizes who is not fat and breaks free physically from like the fat body and defeats him and then is back in her body with control of it but is devastated by the condition of her body so this is like yeah we can say oh sure she was it was all done to her and like all of this stuff but the fact that the next thing that the story does is to be like oh well she's just gonna walk across the desert until she's skinny again well it's like and right now she's suicidal because she's so fat and it's it's unfortunate i mean like i have a very complicated reaction to this story as someone who was very obese for much of my life I was concerned about certain medical thing. I'm not going to go into like my whole medical history on this podcast, but I had bariatric weight loss surgery and I lost 120 pounds. And for me, it was a very difficult, but also freeing and reclamatory of my agency and all of that kind of thing, because I have a binge eating disorder. So, you know, it was a treatment for me. And I empathize a lot with the way Sean feels in this story. Sure. Like the idea that I don't feel safe or strong or healthy in this body, 
in her case, she doesn't even have the like recriminations that I had as someone who was like, this is my fault or what, you know, like that I think a lot of fat people feel because of the way that our society treats fat people. Like, right. You blame yourself for this thing that isn't, first of all, like there's not necessarily anything wrong with you, but also it just becomes this whole like blame game thing. It's about like your willpower or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like all of it is just a mess. And that's, but here it's just as much a mess, right? Yeah, particularly because it's something that's done to her. And this is like I said, Claremont's obsessed with people being transformed physically by outside forces or being possessed, losing control of their body. But you look at the story that happens to Betsy when she's transformed into Lady Mandarin or the story with Storm where Nanny de-ages her. It's like this is something that he does a lot where like mm -hmm. a character is physically transformed, doesn't recognize themselves in the mirror. There's actually the same exact beat because originally there wasn't supposed to be a body swap and Betsy's Asian appearance was just supposed to be plastic surgery, which like let's not even get into it. No. There's that moment where Wolverine recognizes Betsy's face even though she's Asian now and it's like that's Psylocke mm -hmm. and there's the same moment here in the gladiatorial arena story where the new mutants recognize Sean's face even though she's 500 pounds and are like it's Sean oh my god she's fat and evil you know like it's mm -hmm. this very <sighs> so she's emotionally distraught right. she refuses to let Leung and Nga who've been staying with Father Bowen, she won't see them because she doesn't want them to see her the way she looks now. She goes into this deep, deep depression. And that segues directly into the New Mutants special where they go to Asgard. And there, because of time and space shenanigans with Ilyana's power, she gets thrown into the past in Asgard and spends like six months in the desert fighting to survive. She initially is like, I'm too fat to do anything. I'm just going to lie here and die in the desert. This is the end of me. Then a little girl appears and asks her for help. And that's how you can always get Sean where she lives, right? right. Is like, yeah. this child is in trouble. It's her thing with her siblings. It's her thing with anybody who asks anybody, her for help, honestly. but particularly it's, kids and particularly yeah. like a little girl. Like mm -hmm. it, it gets her right. It's older. It gets her right shit. in her trauma. Like, right. I'm totally you know? 100% the oldest sister. And it's it's just how you are for like literally the rest of your life. Unless you're, you know what, Adrian Frost, I guess. <laughs> like that was. Yeah. But, right? but she's a subversion of it very specifically. Like, yeah. She's yeah. the older sister who's a sociopath. And that's either why you're very scary. evil or right. you're very nice as the yeah or like siblings. i mean you look at like sarah gray is another one right where like she's just this there's a lot of caretaking that's expected of you whenever you're the oldest as mm -hmm. far as what my experience is like i definitely like hardcore basically raised my brothers so i think that that's just kind of how it is sometimes it's like the oldest child especially if you're a girl right <laughs> like yeah just like, no Go absolutely ahead. you have to like take care of your brothers because we're doing stuff <laughs> i'm the oldest and i did a little bit of that but not nearly as much as my oh, sure. friends were the oldest did you yeah know, think yeah that, that tends to fall on girls I wouldn't I can only imagine in Sean's situation as well right well like, right because her parents are dead so it's like yeah, well yeah. what am I gonna do yeah I just I just went to this page where Sam is like 
It can't be. I don't believe it. Uh, He's like looking at spherical Sean. I mean, it really right, cause that's cause the, it's also the, the Sinkevich that art that's like so over the top with everybody, right? Which, yeah, that honestly has some pretty uncomfortable moments for other reasons in this <laughs> issue because, yeah, as you say, the exoticism and stuff of like, I feel like um, it's kind of there's times whenever Sean is drawn a little bit uncomfortably on just multiple levels. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just very, it's a very eighties kind of moment. I will say the coloring is beautiful. It's Glynis Oliver. I was just looking at how like everyone has a human skin tone, which is oh, always yeah. nice she's, in an eighties comic. She's the best, right? Like she at least had it like <laughs> dialed in too. Yeah. I was reading like later issues of X-Men and the coloring of like skin tone is just so off so many times. I mean, it's been such an ongoing conversation, but even looking back, I was like, God, it was messed up even in, you know, the late nineties and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I was, I'm always just like, you know what? Never had that problem whenever Glynis was on the books. Nope. I mean, there was the limitations of four color printing. So you did have like the Native Americans are a little magenta. Sure, yeah. But I'm looking at these pages now and a scan of the page that's like on Google Images. So it's the original coloring rather than like the omnibus has the digital coloring. Mm-hmm. But I would say the X-Men digital recolors really keep Glynis's colors. Yeah, yeah, part. yeah. Like they really are good about that. Part of me identifies with this story because my own like weight loss, like now and even then, because like my weight has been such a struggle for me, but it's not part of her. It's like something that's. It presents it as something that you have to overcome, right? Like, yeah. It's totally and then it's just like, like, get skinny and hot again or you're worthless. Is yeah, sort of the implication, I know. I of. just kind of wish that there could be a halfway point or something. I wish that maybe. I don't know. It's hard because this whole story kind of shouldn't have happened to begin with, right? It's like you go back to the beginning. I would love to see more fat characters in comics. I just don't think Karma is the character I would want to explore any of that with because it's just so loaded. They made it too weird. Yeah. It's too weird. I mean, I've said like, I mean, we know that Lorna has an eating disorder. I wouldn't mind if like, at the very least, like just make her a little curvier you know like for the love of god right and just have her like be like oh well i'm a little you know i'm a little thicker than i used to be but it's because i have dealt with my eating disorder (laughs) you know what i mean like yeah and it doesn't matter and i'm a freaking mutant with the most ridiculous amount of power so i don't super need to train every second of the day like you pretend all these other characters yeah you could give her like a christina hendrixy kind of build and she would still look very like a softig superheroine but it could be like i'm okay being 20 pounds heavier than i was when i was in 90s x factor you know what i mean fat people are hot and yeah still hot if you're fat like it's just listen exactly so it's just one of those i don't know but Karma is not the character I would do it with because it really is just it's such too a too much now. It's such a weird moment. When they drop in his... you in the desert for six months. I mean, it's then... sort of the original biggest loser, right? Yeah, like it's, is it's Karma's rough. trapped in the Asgardian desert. This little girl comes to her for help. So she's like, all right. She realizes she's like, well, I can't commit suicide anyway because I'm Catholic and I don't want to go to hell. Yeah. Weird. But she's like, I was considering it. But now there's this little girl and like, I've got to be responsible for this water bottle, essentially. Like, I can't (laughs) be like, I can't let her die. So she gets to her feet and she's like, all right, let's do this. She like makes a spear. She possesses animals and kills them for food. 
it's like a real intense story that sort of unfolds in a montage where like for six months she wanders the desert with this girl surviving by the skin of their teeth and eventually finding their way to safety and by the time that they do she's lost 400 pounds and looks like she did before the shadow king possessed her except that she now has long hair down to her ass which looks actually pretty cool i'm so glad i got dropped off in that desert so i could be hot again yeah like the real kicker at the end of the story. Well, first, first, the kicker is it turns out the little girl isn't real. Of course. It was you all along. <laughs> <laughs> it was an illusion created by Carnilla the Norn Queen. Don't worry about it. She's so funny, though. I love Yeah, her. no, I do, too. But like, we don't have time to get into Carnilla the Norn <laughs> Queen not, in this episode. Can't do it. But... This is not a Journey into Mystery podcast. But <laughs> Carnilla wanted to use Sean against Loki. So was like, hmm, I'll convince her not to kill herself by sending this little girl for her to take care of her six months. So the little girl vanishes and karma reunites with the new mutants. And then when they all leave, Loki, who's defeated, begins transforming them all back to normal because many of them, because in this Chris Claremont story, like Maga gets turned into a fairy creature There's like lots of body transformation happening in this story and he turns them all back, except he's like, you know what? You worked really hard to lose all that weight. So I'll leave you how you are. Okay. That's fine. It's just, it's, (laughs) it's just rough. It's just rough. Yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like, well, we're out of that and let's never go back. Cause that was just never revisit that again. Exactly. So from there, Sadly. <laughs> Sadly, nothing happens. I mean, she, you know, she's back on the team. She has no interest in leading it, though. She's like, yeah. Danny and Sam can keep leading it. She helps them for a bit. Like, she's sort of around for, like, I want to say 15 issues, maybe, max. 32 to 34 is that arc where she's possessed and, like, has mm-hmm. to free herself from the Shadow King. So it's like okay, 35 so yeah. to... 54 35 right? to 54 yeah so, so she it's does like, like almost nothing. 20 <laughs> but she does literally nothing so once she's thin again she reunites with leong and Nga because she's not ashamed of her appearance anymore mm-hmm. again the story is messy and then she is all upset because they disappear again again because these children <laughs> cannot stop getting kidnapped they are endlessly kidnapped we didn't even get to by the way <laughs> A story in uh, 86 that I forgot about where Leong and Nga are two of the kids that get kidnapped by Mojo and Spiral. That's right. In the wild ways in New Mutants Annual number two, which uh, brings Betsy to the X-Men. That is right. Yeah. And they get like aged up or whatever. And then by the end, they're restored. But like they're endlessly being kidnapped by villains. Kidnap, kidnap, kidnap. Nanny and the orphan maker want them. It's just like it's endless, right? It's like they will always be kidnapped because otherwise karma would have time to get a girlfriend. (laughs) Well, yeah. Otherwise, karma has to either like date or something. Or the real problem is when they're not kidnapped, karma has these two kids around that she has to take care of, which is a problem for a superhero character right like babies and children are always getting written out of superhero comics in the same way that girlfriends always are because they disrupt the plot right i hate it 
<laughs> yeah, so the kids disappear again right around the mutant massacre. It's a coincidence, it turns out. But we don't know that at the time. <laughs> Whoopsie, yeah. So but... the mutant massacre is happening. So she goes to... <laughs> she's worried because the mutant massacre is popping off in the tunnels. And she's like, mutants are being targeted. I need to check on Leonga. And she asks Ilyana to teleport her home. And she's like, hmm, it's very dark. Let me click on the light switch. <laughs> <laughs> she, she hits the lights and the entire apartment building like explodes. Mm-hmm. Magic teleports them away and they survive, but it's like, where are Leonga? Good thing she was with a teleporter. Yeah, and we don't know what happened to Leonga. We just know that they are not there. I mean, there are no corpses in the wreckage of the explosion, so hopefully they weren't home. But that's New Mutants 46, and it's just kind of in the background for a while, like, hmm, I'm bummed. <laughs> Magneto promises her, like, I will do my best nope. to find them. <laughs> you won't. <laughs> well, he tries. He asks Tessa to look up where they're at. <laughs> He's like, can you try to find these kids? I will do everything in my power. I will scour the ends of the earth. Tessa, yeah. can you, Tessa, like, can you like run this? a Google with your brain? <laughs> this is actually like the story where Tessa's computer brain is sort of first implied in the way mm -hmm. that we'll get to know more when she's sage in the aughts when Claremont returns. So yeah, in New Mutants 52, which is one of Claremont's last issues on the book, they're all at this event at the Hellfire Club because at this point, the Hellfire Club and the X-Men have a truce and Magneto is in the Lord's Cardinal, which like the New Mutants don't feel great about, but there's this whole, like they play this weird game with Celine. It's a weird issue, but it's fun. Like I like all of the like New Mutants and Hellion stuff in that period. Mm -hmm. Same. But Karma slips out of the party and possesses Tessa because, well, actually she has a very Claremonty monologue and I'll just read part of it. I'm in complete control of her mind and body. Still, I must take care. The tigress may be caged, but the slightest misstep on my part and she will break free. But I have no choice. <laughs> my power allows me to tap Mademoiselle Tessa's knowledge. Her thoughts, they are sharply focused, as ordered and honed as a computer's. This woman is far, far more than she seems. I had hoped that, since she is Shaw's Le Mans, she would know the computer access codes, but it appears that will be the least we can do. Through Tessa, I can access all public and government data networks with an unlimited search program. Splendid! That should be precisely what I need. Someplace in this electronic labyrinth, there has to be at least a clue to the whereabouts of my brother and sister. My teacher, Magneto, <laughs> said he did everything possible to find them. I do not doubt his word, but I have to see for myself. I have to do something. Perhaps he didn't look hard enough or missed something. There has to be an answer. And perhaps he only asked Tessa to do it. <laughs> it's funny. So, like, she runs the whole search and the computers come up with nothing. And then Tessa breaks free, which apparently she could have done the whole time. But she was just sort of like, I was being nice. I was being nice. You're looking for your siblings. Here's the deal, kid. I looked for them because <laughs> Magneto asked me to when they disappeared. And I have found nothing, actually. Like, I have found literally nothing. So, my bad. So, Sean decides to leave a note for Danny. And is like, I'm leaving I have to find Langanga. Don't look for me. And again, it's to Danny, right? Like, this is the thing. It's literally Dear Danielle. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of read the letter, which is like written on Hellfire Stationery, which is really funny. You have to read the letter because it's not said in the text. But she says, Danielle, I've given this much thought and prayer. I can see no other way. I cannot sit idly by, safe and secure, while others search for those I love. My uncle is a crime lord. <laughs> if anyone has the means of discovering Leung and Nga's fate, it is he. Oh, my God. 
Therefore, I have decided to return to his household and his service. Do not follow or attempt to contact me. I shall return when I am able. Until that day, I wish you well. I love you all. Xiang Kui Ma. And Danny's just like, blast! And that last part, like, that starts with do not follow or attempt to contact me. That's in a thought bubble that we see from Danny. But you have to read the part about her uncle in the letter, in her handwriting. So this, my understanding is that this plot was supposed to be part of Fallen Angels 2. Mm-hmm. Yep, I heard that too. A, a sequel to the original Fallen Angels miniseries by Joe Duffy. There was supposed to be another one. Joe Duffy was supposed to return for more adventures with Ariel and Chance and Gomi and all those. The crew. <laughs> Sean was supposed to be part of that, but that miniseries was canceled. And instead, she pops up in the Wolverine solo by mm-hmm. Claremont. And there she is working for her uncle who has promised that he will find the twins if she does his dirty work the way that Tran does. I'm just like, why would you trust this guy ever to do the thing that he's supposed to do? Like, what is what is this part? I'm like, why? Why did you go back to this guy? I get that you were frustrated. And of course, I mean, this time for the New Mutants, nobody was really helping her, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I think that the reason why is that she, like, they brought her back to the team and Chris was like, she still doesn't fit with this team. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is why I'm like, why didn't she go ask anybody else? She could have asked literally the X-Men or she could have asked, uh, like, even the Fantastic Four, right? Yeah, because this is before Fall of the Mutants. So it's like, ask Storm. Yeah, there's a bunch of people. Yeah, you know the Fantastic Four. Ask Reed Richards. Ask literally anybody except for your sketchy, terrible <laughs> uncle. Anybody but General Wenyakoi. By the way, just to go back to the names thing for a second, Uncle Nguyen. Yeah. Nguyen is the most common surname in Vietnam, but it is a surname, not, not. a personal name. Yes. So... So I like I was like, is he supposed to be General Wynn? But he's General Coy, and they always call him General Coy. Did you just like look at a long list of words and just choose? As Fabian Nuciesa said on his episode of this podcast, it was a lot harder to research things like names back then. Like you had to go to the library mm. and like try to figure it out. Ilyana Rasputin is also wrong. <laughs> like just yeah. straight up wrong. Like Ilyana is not a name in Russian. And it should be Rasputina because she's a girl. Right. They fixed that more recently. And because it sounds cool. Like, it sounds really cool for her. Ilyana Rasputina sounds very cool. I'm into that. Yeah, for sure. So the thing here that's weird is, like, we see Sean in Madripoor. She's helping her uncle because he's trying to take over Madripoor and become its undisputed crime lord master his chief rival is Jessan Hoan, Tiger Tiger, who is an mm-hmm. awesome character. Love her, yeah. I love Tiger Tiger. Oh, yeah, the flirtations in the Wolverine story that are happening between Lindsay and <laughs> Tiger Tiger. Lindsay McCabe and Tiger Tiger. Yeah, yeah, I'm just like, if, if I ever doubted that Lindsay McCabe was bisexual, I did not doubt that after this story. <laughs> <laughs> This and the follow-up, because she comes back, right? Like, whatever we do, the um, Joe Duffy little arc that happens a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. God. Lindsay McCabe, for those of you who are not familiar, is a character from the original Jessica Drew Spider-Woman series. Jessica Drew's lover. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Don't worry about it, basically. But she ends up uh, in Madripoor for a while and mm-hmm. uh, factors into this story. Kissing Jessica. Kissing Jessan here. Like, yes. you know, like, yeah. She clearly has a thing for women named Jess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But so Tiger Tiger, who is awesome, is, I mean, her name is problematic. Again, this is the thing about Madripoor. Like, yeah, Madripoor itself, All of these right? stories are super, super cool. However... It is very much a white guy writing a cool Japan, China, Thailand, Hong Kong. It's Singapore. It's Singapore. I mean, he's writing a cool <laughs> Hong Kong kung fu movie set in fantasy Singapore. Right. It's messy. It's very messy. And like, of course, the benevolent crime lord gal is called Tiger Tiger. Mm-hmm. After the Kipling poem, which like talk oh, about. Oh, is that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, so there's that to begin with. It's like the yeah, kickling of it all. Already. But also, like, you know, Tiger Lady is, like, not oh, yeah. ideal. Anyway, that character rules, though. She does rule. She debuted the year I was born. There was that challenge that was like, who are the characters who debuted the year you were born that you like best? And I was like, ooh, hard to pick. But, like, I feel like maybe it's, like, Tiger Tiger and Manoli Weatherell. Oh, my God. Not that many new characters in 88. I wonder what mine are. I'm going to have to look that up. A bunch of like fun supporting character gals who like Claremont just threw in there because he was launching all these new books. Right. I mean, it was like a whole it was it was a big expansion year for the X-Men. Excalibur and Wolverine both launched that year, Mm -hmm. which is why Wheezy takes over New Mutants, because Chris was writing too many books and was like, I need you to fill in on New (laughs) Mutants for a while And then after, like, the four issues that she was supposed to fill in with, he was like, so, actually, can you just keep writing it? I have too many books. (laughs) Yeah, because I forget about that sometimes, right? Is is that he wasn't always just writing X-Men. He had, like, all of these other runs on characters. Right. He was writing, at this point, he was writing Uncanny X-Men, Excalibur, and the Wolverine solo. And he was like, I can't write four books. You need to write New Mutants. Oh, my God. She was writing New Mutants and X Factor. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, I'm sorry, I can't pick it back up. Like, I just can't do four books. So she kept writing both of them. And then he dropped Wolverine. Peter David takes over the Wolverine solo at like issue nine, right after the Karma arc. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Um, I want to take a quick moment just to state that the first character on the list of characters that were introduced in the year I was born, 1983, is Amethyst, Princess of Gem World. I love (laughs) Amethyst, Princess of Gem World. I am so happy to hear that. (laughs) Oh, we stan Amethyst, Princess of Gem World. I'm a huge that original, the original like maxi series is a fucking so good. Fucking rules. It's like if you've never read the original 80s. Amethyst Princess of Gemworld DC Comics book. It is absolutely worth reading. I recommend it. It is magical girl nonsense. And mm-hmm. I, I fully <laughs> applaud. No one has ever figured out what to do with Amethyst since in the following 30 years. Oh, but, but there was like, I mean, Amy Reader tried and then it just got like completely thrown off the rails by the pandemic, right? Yeah, like, a couple of people have tried. The The most recent one I heard, it was good. But yeah, I think the pandemic killed it. It was like, oh, that's a four issue, it turns out. Yep. <laughs> Instead of an like, ongoing. Well, sorry about that, <laughs> yeah. kids. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, okay, so these well. Wolverine 
stories, right? They're like not only a little bit problematic, but they are entirely forgettable as well, other than the presence, of course, of um, a few key characters that we really enjoy, but they don't get to do too much. It's where Wolverine gets that armor that Bessie wears in the Outback, which is mm-hmm. super cool. He gets it from that's Bethany cool. Cabe, doesn't he? <laughs> which that's an Iron Man character. Don't worry about it. Don't I'm just even saying worry. there's a lot going on in this book. Yeah. The thing that is weird about, oh, I just found the tweet I made that was like, tell me your age without telling me your age by sharing a picture of your favorite comic character that debuted the year you were born. And so I retweeted on the four I chose. I said, several strong candidates here. It's Manoli Weatherell, Nastir, Nanny <laughs> of Nanny and the Orphan Maker. <laughs> And Tiger Tiger. I was like, this is a good, I feel good about this for, because I went like X specific because it was on the Cerebro account. But like, Of course, yes. Manoli Weatherall is fun for so many reasons, but like ever since I recently learned that she was like the real Manoli Weatherall who worked for NPR was Chris Claremont's girlfriend. Oh, wow. This is new knowledge to me. I'm fully obsessed because they clearly broke up, but he just kept the character around. Mm-hmm. And not in like a creepy way where like, yeah. She's just around. Yeah, it could easily be very creepy, right? But I guess they were just still friends. And so he had her pop up as a reporter in later stories. Which you know? he did with people, you know? So it wasn't like just his ex-girlfriend. His Wiccan friend, Amy Sefton, who was a writer about Wiccan stuff. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know if they were ever involved, but they were in the same social circle. Her friends wrote into the podcast and were like, I heard you love Amanda Sefton. This is your <gasps> friend, Amy. And I was like, this is so fascinating. He just loved to pull. I mean, he, names are always. I was just talking to Mike Carey last week about. Dr. Bella Pagan, who created the Children of the Vault, who is named after his editor at Pan Macmillan, who I know very well in my mm. day job. Because, like, Bella Pagan's a great name. How are you not going to use that somewhere? Of course. You know what I mean? Similarly, like, Manoli Weatherell is such a good name. There's no way. <laughs> if you met that person and you're a writer of superhero comics, you're like, I got to throw that in there. Somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, all that to say, what's weird here is, like, Sean has always been a very moral character. And the implication that she's just been doing real evil shit for her uncle, even like under duress, it just never, it's never explored enough for me to feel like it makes sense. She had a girlfriend. That's all I can say is that there was another <laughs> thing happening in Madripoor that I see this is you really have to fill in the blanks with this character. And I'm just yeah. like, yeah, it doesn't make sense that she would. I just don't think her even contacting her uncle makes sense. I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's just to get her to Madripoor. Once they're in Madripoor, I'm just like, she's in love with somebody. That's all I can do. I know that women should have better motivations, but honestly, this is the better motivation in this situation. Like. <laughs> She does betray her uncle secretly to help patch Wolverine and Tiger Tiger. (laughs) But what the resolution of the arc is that Tiger (laughs) and General Koi agree to share Madripoor. Mm -hmm. And Tiger's like, well, I don't do drugs or slave trading. So you can have those markets and the rest are mine. Which is wild. (laughs) <laughs> Which is why, but like, I mean, we're supposed to understand that Madripoor is like a criminal nation. Like, it's basically like Tortuga from the Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean movies. Like, it's just a lawless pirate land. Right. Which is why the story is not just in Singapore, because it had to be like a fictional country or it would be pretty offensive. Yes. And it still is. But it's yeah. still pretty like, huh. But it's not, you know, if it was like Singapore is ruled by slave traffickers. I think, you know, that would be a little bit more. But it is still kind of like, this is where we keep all the evil people. (laughs) Yeah. And Tiger Tiger's whole thing is it's like, I do crimes, but I'm a good person. So like, I'm the crime (laughs) lord to support. 
Yeah, but I'm not going to stop the other stuff. No, she's like, you can keep slave trading, just stay out of my legitimate businesses. And it's like, okay, well, slave trading does affect a very specific demographic. And I think, (laughs) I don't know. It bums me out. Well, it bums me out because like they leave her there. Yeah, 100%. The idea that Sean off panel now is assisting her uncle with his slave trading operation really bothers me. It really does. I understand that she's doing it because she's desperate to find her siblings, but I, I just, just don't, don't buy, buy it. it. Yeah. I don't buy the rationale. And I, I mean, here's the thing. You have to fill it in. I assume she's secretly betraying her uncle all the time. If we just leave it as she stays, like keep your enemies closer. She stays with him and tries to undermine his operations from within or something. Like they're just, I feel like we need a story exploring this period in her life. Yeah. Otherwise it, you walk away from it being like, so you just kind of helped your uncle uh, do the same thing to a bunch of people that happened to you basically. Well, that's that what was- I'm saying. Like she was, well, not only was she just enslaved by the shadow King, but also like, she her origin story is that she was raped by pirates so it's yeah. like during really... one of the great humanitarian crises of the, you know of that entire history yeah. in that part of the world so it's like you know this character is we're supposed to accept is now helping pirates hmm. sex traffic women i just yeah. don't buy it yeah especially now too that she's a lesbian and we like look back and we're like so the lesbian was doing that <laughs> like That's like something that I was going to get to when we got to her coming out. But it is the one thing about this character being a lesbian that's unfortunate is that it plays into that sort of Freudian stereotype of like lesbians were raped. Like, you know, that. Yeah, for sure. And like that stuff is real sick because like when you think about it, because what is it? Abusers gravitate towards queer people, right? Right. It's the cause and effect is that queer people are vulnerable and are targeted by abusive people. Yeah. And so like the fact is a ton of us have gone through hell, you know. But it's like rape doesn't make you a lesbian. Of course not. <laughs> well, no, but that's but that but Freud thought it did. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's pre- that's prevalent thought. I mean, I can say as a lesbian, people think that, you know, like people still think that. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and I will say to Freud's credit, not a sentence I say that often. No. You know, Freud believed that homosexuality was like a personality inversion caused by childhood trauma, but he also thought there was nothing wrong with it. So he would be like, don't try to cure them. That's Which is up. like after something like psychopathia sexualis is right, like exactly. Good. Like and at then- the time, that was pretty progressive, even if he still thought we were all, you know, traumatized freaks. But he was yeah. like, well, they're not hurting anybody. Like, you know, leave them alone. <laughs> However, women... <laughs> He didn't think you could cure it. So he was like, just, you know, leave it alone. Yeah. But anyway, that said, and I will say, I don't think John Francis Moore, who's the one who established her as like an implied lesbian. (laughs) I'm not sure he was aware of that element of her backstory, because after the initial story in New Mutants, where Danny reads her mind by accident, it never really comes up again until the Marjorie Lou astonishing and also the thing is is that i think that for this character i think it does whenever she shows up in x 475 because is that that's not the next time after the wolverine stories that she appears right but whenever she does show up in that it's like we haven't seen her in forever i feel like if you were gonna have a character be like queer also like i buy it you know like (laughs) i fully buy it no if you read the classic stuff that bitch is gay. I'm That's like, a lesbian. Yeah, she's a lesbian. And I'm I'm glad that you saw that. Now you can do that with most Claremont characters, but I particularly like that John Francis Moore, when he was bringing back characters like Karma and Skids for these cameo appearances in his road trip arc, he thought about where are they now? And like Skids, it's very natural for her to be like, 
I am a college student who calls myself Sally and never uses my mutant power and doesn't want to talk about any of this. Please never come near me again. Oh right. my God, why are you here? <laughs> Even just by being here, now I'm involved in rainfire stuff. Like Now I'm going to get possessed by the demoness pandemonia and Great. become like, right, thanks guys. I let you crash on my couch for two days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You truly <laughs> have worn out your welcome. <laughs> And similarly, like when we're going to let's like, let's stop in with karma. Where's she at now? And it's like, oh, she's gay now. Good for her. You yeah. know, like it, it worked fine because karma had always been so repressed and like sad. And so what's more important than her being we'll get to there. But like what's almost what's more important than her being gay in that issue is how happy she is. Mm-hmm. It's the first time we've like ever seen karma smile. She's happy. And it's. <laughs> the kind of happiness that comes from being a gay person who finally is having sex. And <laughs> oh my God, I'm having so much gay sex. I'm having so much fun. There isn't some kind of weird uncle thing happening the whole time, which right. is like, I will say that I still believe that in Madripoor, she was definitely having sex. But sure. But well, this is that's for the Prestige Karma miniseries that you will write. <laughs> and it'll be great. We can only hope. But to go back to Madripoor for a moment. Uh <laughs> I think Joe Duffy had the same thought we did. Like, this doesn't make sense to me because Joe Duffy then gets an arc on Wolverine. Mm -hmm. And Joe Duffy, like, you know, she went to Wellesley. I don't know what Joe Duffy's sexual situation is, but I feel like she (laughs) she gets it. She knew some gays. She at least knows lesbians, right? So... Joe Duffy gets an arc on Wolverine and that's when Karma comes back, is in Wolverine 27. Sean's uncle... He is doing this thing with an evil organization called Project Lazarus, which like nothing called that is going to be good. Peter David loves a, a project. So I feel like yeah. wasn't this might have been that might have already been happening. The project, but it, it could have been Joe Duffy. I don't really remember because quite honestly, the Wolverine solo, not my wheelhouse most of the time. Real boring. Yeah. I just don't care particularly about Wolverine. Like he's I like him as a supporting character in other things. I don't really want to read a Wolverine book. <laughs> I was going to think it would be really funny if your podcast did an episode on Wolverine but like also did one on Patch <laughs> and pretended it was like a totally different character. <laughs> I honestly thought about that early on because I was so daunted at the prospect of a Wolverine episode. Uh, I know. But then when I got Jerry and he was like, I love all of that solo stuff. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, then let's talk about that. Yeah. Honestly like much as I don't care about Wolverine, the Mad Report stuff is the most interesting Wolverine material. Because it's when he gets away from the group. and he Right, it's like him as a own... solo character in a way that's not, first of all, it's not, re- it's not Sabretooth and Weapon X related. And <sighs> Thank God, yeah. Apart from the original Barry Windsor Smith miniseries, I just don't care about Weapon X particularly. Mm-mm. It doesn't move. I like Morrison's Weapon Plus. But the the Weapon X, as it was for a long time, is just death just adult. All of the shady government organizations and comics, I'm just like, it's boring. Silver Fox is cool. Oh, yeah. But then you realize that she's working for Hydra, and I'm just like... Which is like, are you, see, once again, right? They did it again. <laughs> it's the eternal Hydra problem of like, unfortunately, there's no good time for Hydra like it's just there's just too much baggage and particularly when you have a character like Silver Fox who's Native American exactly the idea that she's working for Hydra is insane wildly offensive and a murder victim by the way like even if that's like made up or whatever was raped and murdered by Sabretooth or so we thought maybe she wasn't now she's back and she's a Nazi or maybe she's mind controlled maybe she's not even the real Silver Fox bummer yeah (laughs) the point is this story is bad I would like them to bring Silver Fox back now and like retcon out the Hydra stuff just retcon so many very easy to do yeah 
But anyway, actually, speaking of Hydra, way, way back when, remember when Sean exploded in New Mutant 6? I do. That whole plot, I was saying that for the listeners. I know you remember. <laughs> but I'm saying that that whole plot is actually Viper is the enemy in that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, in this Joe Duffy arc, General Coy is working with this project called Project Lazarus. Don't worry about it. It doesn't actually matter. It's fine, but yeah. There is a village in Madripoor called Rumika where the farmers are being exploited by this project. Sean is distressed when she learns details about this and shows up just in time to see soldiers slaughtering the entire village. <sighs> she tries to rescue the children because, again, this is sort of her thing. She like looks at them and she's like, they remind me of Leonga. I need to help them. But she's not strong enough to possess all of the soldiers. So she fails and all of the children are murdered in front of her. Yep. Just going to traumatize this character some more. <laughs> it's like every time she shows up, somebody's just traumatizing the shit out of her. And then she realizes that her uncle was involved in the match. Naturally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's her breaking point. Which is like, I guess... She says, understand me clearly, uncle. From this day forward, all debts between us are canceled. You harm another innocent, anyone outside of Madripoor, and I will take your life in every sense of the word. And you know with my powers I can do it. So she threatens essentially to absorb him into her soul the way that she did with Tran, which is a scary threat. It is a scary threat. But also like, girl, you could just shoot him. That's what I think. I'm like, just do it. You'd save so many lives just by doing that. Like, think of all of the people who are being sold into slavery by this guy, like every single year. Like that, how could you, like, that is uh, not just like, oh, that's a bad person. (laughs) It's sort of her, like her thing. I mean, the code name she gives herself, like she's obsessed with this idea of balancing the scales and like, you know, maybe she like threatens to absorb him because she's like, I would deserve that. You know what I mean? Like I would have to, because then it would, I would be taking all that sin onto myself like she does with her brother. And I think that that's maybe part of why she doesn't do it because that would be incredibly Too much. difficult to deal with. Too much to deal with. You already have an evil twin whispering, do terrible things in your head. The weirdest part to me though is she said, you harm another innocent, anyone outside of Madripoor. Meaning like- A Madripoor is fair game? Fair game in Madripoor, I guess? I don't know. I know, I know. That's the last anyone sees of her for quite a while. She- finishes that storyline out that is in 1990 and then it's not until 93 it's not until 94 that she pops up for like more than a cameo is it the b series no it's before that actually it's fabian nicieza's storyline young hunt Oh, yeah, yep, 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 yep. The unfortunately named. Yeah, Young Hunt. (laughs) Let's not call, actually, let's just go ahead and strike that from the record that that's even the name of the story. Young Hunt is not allowed. (laughs) I mean, I actually think it's like, like out of context, it sounds horrific. But I actually think the horrific sound of it is cool because it's supposed to be distress. I mean, it's so basically... The upstarts. Yes, the upstarts. Don't yes, worry yes, about yes. No, but you do, I guess, have to worry about it in this case. The upstarts are an organization <laughs> of mutants. They were organized by Celine. We'll get to that in her episode. Don't worry about it right now. But <laughs> they're organized by Celine and they're run by this uber powerful telepath called the Games Master. Mm-hmm. It's Fabian Cortez, the Fenris twins, Shinobi <laughs> Shaw, and Trevor Fitzroy. 
Oh, it wasn't Sienna Blaze. Oh, and Sienna Blaze. <laughs> Actually, so I, can you tell that Sienna Blaze is a super memorable are, character? You are going to have a Sienna Blaze episode someday. 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 <laughs> you know what the real, for, for, the, for the purposes of this podcast, the real significance of Sienna Blaze is that from what I can tell, she was created to replace Zaladane in that storyline ah, after Claremont left the book. That's right. Because Claremont was going to bring Zaladane back with Earth Control powers, and then those are the powers that Sienna Blaze has, and she's in the upstarts, which I think Zaladane was going to be. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Point is, (laughs) the young hunt is the upstarts decide a couple Hellions survived Fitzroy's Massacre, which was a different upstart game. Let's hunt them and the New Mutants, like everybody who's around, right? So Sean teams up with Empath and Danny because they're being hunted in the young hunt because they're not members of any of the teams at that time. Danny's like involved with the MLF. It's really, don't worry about that. (laughs) Go back to her episode. It's a complicated story. And they get rescued by uh, X-Force and the new warriors and Husk, I think helps out. (laughs) Husk is there. Yeah. Cause this is like circa Gen X early days. And she's like, I'm a X-Man now too, Sam. Yeah. 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 And then we get to the Beast story, which is like, first of all, the idea that there was a Beast miniseries period in 1997 is just like bizarre to think about. Mm -hmm. It's a weird miniseries. It's astoundingly weird. The first issue is by Keith Giffen. Then it's by Terry Cavanaugh after that. That's right. Yeah. They just switch switch plots kind of almost too because it's like they have a direction, but you can tell that there wasn't a ton of communication between the writers. Sean is still looking for Leong and Nga. Oh, wow. <laughs> so many years later. Shocker, right? After, like, helping her uncle. Like... It's been 11 years. Yeah. Since they were captured. 11 years of publication. She is still looking for them. She tracks their whereabouts to, ah, uh, shocker, the Hellfire Club. And this is where you go, like, are you fucking kidding me? Because you could have just went, looked there first. <laughs> she had Tessa in the whole thing. Like, they couldn't find them anywhere. Now, at the time, I don't think they were there. The really unfortunate thing about Leong and Nga, when you think about it, is that I believe they've just been sold around the world by, like, yeah. several people at this point. Yeah. Because it turns out that they were captured by Shinobi Shaw who is Sebastian Shaw's half-Japanese son, who is named Shinobi, which, like... <laughs> here's the thing. When it comes to, like, bad names for Asian characters, as we've discussed, like, earlier in this episode, I actually think that Sebastian Shaw would name his Japanese son Shinobi. <laughs> like, it feels oh, very in character for would. Sebastian. So I'm like, right. okay. But, you know... He's an evil half-Japanese bisexual who kills his father and takes over the Hellfire Club. Sebastian gets better. Don't worry about it. It was cool for a minute, though. Yeah, and Tessa actually starts working with Shinobi. So, like, there's continuity there. That's what Tessa's up to in the 90s. But then eventually Mm -hmm. she just goes back to Sebastian when he pops back up. The Hellfire Club post-Claremont is very herky-jerky. And you don't have to really think about it too much. (laughs) But so Shinobi experiments on the twins because he's trying to figure out how to remove the mutant gene from his enemies but he doesn't figure it out and then he sells the twins to spiral who is working with viper and viper had previously been the villain of the arc way back at the beginning of new mutants where sean exploded if you remember that arc and here we find out that viper 
has a specific hatred of Sean and her family because when Tran was working for General Coy, Uncle Wen, he possessed Viper and forced her to become General Coy's sex slave. Which I have to assume means that they didn't do research on like how <laughs> how Sean and Tran's power works because the implication there is that Tran was having sex with his uncle while possessing Viper. I'm sorry, like that's just right. That's how the power works. So let's not get too deep into that because I don't think that was the intention. Yet again, but it probably wasn't the intention. It just gives you too much. It's weird to think about. Just putting it out there. I swear. So Viper, who, by the way, is a fucking Nazi. Yes. Straight up Nazi. We never <laughs> like her. Madam Hydra. I mean, I like her because she's a fun villain, but like she's truly the scum of the earth. And it's truly. important to remember that whenever she pops up. Doesn't she show up in one of the X-Men movies as like an actual snake or something? She was in The Wolverine, <laughs> one of the Wolverine solo movies. Very much kind of in name only. She fights a very in name only Marco Yoshida, who's actually That's right. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now. And a very in name only Yukio. Yes. Who's also cool, but like is not Yukio. Not so. not the one that we know about, yeah. <laughs> right. And is the first of two Yukios who are not the real Yukio. Exactly. In the, uh, Fox X-Men movie franchise. That's just the Fox X-Men movie franchise, right? <laughs> like, you know. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Spiral is working with Viper. She uses her body shop, S-H-O-P-P-E. Like the malt shop, yeah. Yeah. Which I always, I do like that. I like that. <laughs> it is, it is I mean, funny. Spiral's I've, fun. Spiral's fun. I think Spiral's that Spiral fun. actually has a really good sense of humor. <laughs> she does. Like, she's super crazy and evil, but like, she, yeah. she has, she, she loves to laugh. She has her moments. She loves a yuck. <laughs> she's a bit of a jokester, Spiral. I mean, literally, like, the Betsy and Connor retcon, the whole thing is like, the reason that Revanche thought she was Betsy is because Spiral thought it would be funny. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's like, From Spiral's perspective, it She's is like, I of. mingled your brains because I thought that was funny. <laughs> the rest of us had to live in that world. But for Spiral, I can see why you did it. Exactly. And that actually brings me to a friend of mine, Chad Raymond, has said, and this, like, I think about this now all the time, ever since he first said it to me. He was like, Lady Mandarin should have been karma. <sighs> because she was in Madripoor. She's prone to getting possessed by things. You could have had the hand capture her in some like conflict with General Coy or whatever. And she could have been Lady Mandarin. Then Betsy doesn't get turned into an Asian person. It's still a Claremont fave. And then like we would have had karma. And then karma could have joined the X-Men and had like a psychic knife and been that character and had like a lot of more cool uh clothing items on <laughs> probably considering what we know about the character right um so that's just a road not taken that i think about now could have made Literally. a lot of everything a lot better but all the time because karma didn't do anything in the 90s at all yeah other than show up at burning man <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> she so, did acid yeah. she did acid during the 90s yeah i mean like lady mandarin being vietnamese wouldn't be any better than lady mandarin being japanese but you know right. the rest of the story would have been much less messy yeah anyway so this whole thing with viper viper's hired spiral spiral uses the body shop to turn langa into adults and they become sexy evil adults who fight beast and sean and cannonball it's very weird 
It's like a reverse nanny moment, basically. A hundred percent. And there's a whole scene where uh, Beast is like, well, why didn't you come to the X-Men for help? And Cannonball's <laughs> just like, are you, are you seriously asking her that question, though? Because, like, we've known about this and nobody's done no anything. No one's <laughs> like, helped her. It's been a minute, you know? Like, we've known her for much of her adult life. And Sean is like, all right, well, uh, can you fix them? And Beast is like, uh, no, actually, Spiral's technology is way beyond my science and I don't know what to do. So Sean's like, all right, I guess I'll take these adults with me and try to figure out how to turn them back into nine-year-olds. <laughs> Why didn't you go to the X-Men for help? <laughs> right. And that's the last we see of her for a bit. She pops back up later that year, Saul Leung, in the Ben Robb miniseries, New Mutants, Truth or Death which you don't have to worry about. It involves yeah. time travel. Basically, the teen new mutants time travel to the future and find out that Ilyana is going to die of the legacy virus and try to change the past mm. so that it doesn't happen with the help of her brother, Mikhail, which is just, that's a bad choice always. Don't do it. So, yep. yeah. The older new mutants, who are now X-Force, are like, we don't want to let you change the past because that would be really dangerous even though obviously we miss Ilyana like you can't do that and then Sean who's there because they're having like a class reunion basically actually turns on them and helps the kids which I think is interesting like Danny's like what the hell are you doing and she actually fights Danny about mm -hmm. it because she's like I failed my brother my twin, and then I failed my younger siblings, who are all fucked up, and I'm not going to let any more families be destroyed because I don't do anything. So I'm going to save her. I'm going to do this with them. And Danny's like, uh, no, and fights with her, but it doesn't really, it just doesn't really, it doesn't go well, and it doesn't matter, and at the end of the story, everybody, all the the teens who, who travel through time, and sort of a precursor to the 05 time-traveling teens later on, get their memories erased by Sean so that they don't fuck up the past. Which is like, <laughs> come on. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a miniseries you truly don't have to worry about. So don't yeah. worry too much about it. But I'm mentioning it because it is one of Sean's like four appearances in the entire 90s. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> It really is. I will say that in this story, it's clear that she's been practicing. Like, again, we never get to see the arc, but she's a stronger telepath now than she was. She has like strong telepathic defenses and stuff. It's like, you know, you can tell she's been practicing, but we never really see it. And then she vanishes again and does not return until the following year when she shows up at Burning Man, which we've gone into detail about. <laughs> yeah. They fight Celine there, which like Celine at Burning Man is funny to me. So funny. John Francis Moore has Sean casually mentioned that she found a doctor who fixed the kits. Yeah. It's not explained how it happened or why or who it was because this is must be a super scientist more advanced than Beast or Spiral, but we never, it's like, it's a true on page. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Sean also has a thong hanging out of her jeans in this story. I just was looking at a panel. I'm going to try to put that, put like gay pink hair Sean in the cover art somehow because <laughs> she deserves it by God. Yeah, she deserves it. That was her, um, that was a weekend to never forget, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that one issue, which came out in January of 98, is then the last appearance of Karma until Mechanics. Whew. 
And that's like what, 2004 or something? 2002, late right. 2002, October 2002. So Mechanics, if you've listened to the Kate Pride episode, you are perhaps familiar with the Mechanics, is a miniseries that Chris Claremont did during his early run on Extreme X-Men. It's about Kitty Pride, who has gone to college at the University of Chicago to pursue a degree in astrophysics. And she's like closeted herself as a mutant. No one knows she's a mutant, but she finds herself unable to resist speaking out against the anti-mutant student organization Purity that's causing all kinds of trouble on campus. She reunites there with Sean, who is also a student at the University of Chicago and is working there in the library. What's curious about this is this is just a Claremont moment, right? Because like Kitty and Sean have no pre-existing relationship that we've ever seen on panel. Yeah. But they're two of Claremont's favorite characters. So he establishes basically they have a long history together. They were students at Xavier's together, yada, yada, yada. Like they know they're super old friends. Yeah. Even though that really doesn't add up math wise. It doesn't, but, but it's fine. We just fine. like, you know, it's fine. Here she's taking care of again. Kitty makes reference to the fact that Sean went through more horrendous shit before she ever met the X-Men than Kitty's ever been through in her life. Yeah. Which is sort of the first reference to the rape backstory with the pirates since that original story. In mechanics, Sean and Kitty are a great little pair. They work really well together. They're cute. They're cute. I'm going to start calling Kitty Aunt mm. Kitty. They get really attached to her. And then there's a moment in Mechanics 5 where Chris Claremont, undoubtedly thrilled with John Francis Moore's revelation that, you know, like, and it was never said explicitly, but it's pretty clear in the X-Force issue that Sean is right. gay. Right, she's still not out of the closet, right? Like, that still is, like, You know, not... she's, she, asks, she asks Danny if Danny was ever into Sam. And Danny says, oh, he's not really my type. And Sean's like, you know, I hear you. You know, and it's like, <laughs> LOL, right? Um, so then in Mechanics 5, there's like, the building is like crumbling and exploding around them. Kitty saves Sean. And Sean starts to laugh. And she says, it's the weirdest thing, Kitty. The whole world is crashing down around us. I feel so scared. And at the same time, totally jazzed. Kitty says, Sean, I'm so happy to hear you laughing. And then their faces are, like, right up against each other. Sean is clearly into it. Like, let's do this. <laughs> Kitty has a look on her face like, oh, what's <laughs> happening? Oh, how do I keep finding myself getting kissed <laughs> In by this girls? scenario, right? <laughs> and the narration says... It's, and this is Kitty narrating. She says, for that precious moment, things are moving in a direction I never imagined. Really? <laughs> we both forget how much trouble we're still in. And then they get attacked and the moment is interrupted. Yep. That's what um, happens to queer people. <laughs> yeah. You know, kiss. before they can kiss on panel. But it's very much a moment. Mm -hmm. The end of mechanics, you know, they triumph over purity or whatever. Don't worry about it. It's a cute doesn't matter. Yeah, the, it's art, right. the art is like... Wild. Iffy, but uh, yeah. if you well, the covers are wild. Yeah, I actually was shocked to discover that those covers are by a woman. Mm -hmm. That floored me because they are like real weird, real weird and sexual in a way that feels creepy to me. The miniseries, the writing of it is pretty cute though. It's like for Latter Day Claremont, it's quite good, is what I'll say. Like you know, I think it's some of his better aughts work. Mm -hmm. And then she turns back up. 
later that same year in Weir and DeFilippis's New Mutants. Mm-hmm. We see her at her graduation, which Kitty doesn't attend because she's busy. Kitty. According to Sean. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just every time, right? Like, Kitty. Learning are like, is Aunt Kitty coming? And she's like, oh, she's she's busy. And there's an empty seat at the graduation that was clearly for Kitty, but Kitty doesn't show up. Brutal. Kitty, why do you keep doing this? She keeps <laughs> doing this. You're so awful. I know. I know. She's so bad to these girls. <laughs> this is why I'm just like, I don't like. I mean, I feel like she and Yana, like, it, it, but like, I just, she, she, she did Sean and Rachel so dirty that I'm just like, leave those girls alone. Yeah. Let them find love. <laughs> let, Without you. Let both of them date Ilyana because I feel like Ilyana. Well, here's the thing is like, this is where the Sean Danny agenda really kicks into high gear, right? Because this book is about Danny and her new role as a teacher. She goes to Chicago to find prodigy David Elaine, who Karma has met. And that's how this all sort of comes together. And Danny ends up crashing Sean's graduation and sitting in Kitty's seat. <laughs> Metaphorically. And then they, like, Sean comes off the stage with, in her cap and gown and they embrace. And Danny convinces her to come back to the school and be a teacher there. And she's like, okay, I guess I'm not doing anything. I guess I'll come hang out with you. Um, yeah, because I have no inner life besides these kids that I take yeah. care of. And like I mean? every, <laughs> every like woman character, I'm just, because I feel like that's how it was in mechanics too, right? Like, yeah, no, it's just like, well, Kitty's having an adventure. I'm going to follow her around in the hopes that maybe I can eat her box. Yeah. For years, Sean is just like, I'm desperate for a girlfriend. Can I, like, anyone, I will be the supporting character in your story. Please just love me. And they're all See, just like, I don't know that I'm gay, though. Sorry. This is what messes me up, too, because I'm just like, I, too, have a history as being the emotional support lesbian. And I think that it's one of those things where when you know a bunch of straight women, <laughs> like, which I did in my 20s more than I do now, I guess. I still obviously know a ton of straight people. But, like... Mm -hmm. But not by choice. It was more prevalent in my 20s whenever I had a mostly straight friend group, right? And it was a mostly straight woman. And I remember definitely that's just, it's almost like a thing that gets put on you in a weird way. And it's, I don't think that maybe it's always conscious, but like they'll definitely do stuff where it's like, oh yeah, I would hold hands with all of my friends, but the lesbian's the only one that I do hold hands with. Mm. And then it's just like, there's always kind of like a weirdness. And I'm just like, I get it. And I it, and it's not like it always has to be this way or anything. I would never think that. But whenever I see karma have to go through this stuff, I'm just like, see, you have to ask yourself, are you best friends or are you being the emotional support lesbian? Right. right are now? you best friends or are you dating this girl who doesn't know you're dating her? Yeah, exactly. Who loves all of the dating part. Yeah, she just doesn't want to touch your pussy. <laughs> Which, like... You know, not to be vulgar. Should, but should be kind of a deal breaker. It's everything but the sex. Yeah. 
they're just like, oh, I don't see girls that way. Except they have these deep, intimate friendships with her that are literally just relationships, but they don't have sex with her. Yeah. And I think that it's a thing where it's like, that also isn't super healthy because it's like you are giving somebody too much. They're not expected not to date men, but you're kind of right. expected not to date any other women. Because like, you have to be available for them. Yeah. And so I think that there's just like weird double standards come into play. I, like I said, I have plenty of straight friends. None of this ever comes up with, right? But like... It's this dance of death that I think a lot of gay women in their 20s wind up in with yeah. like friends who are confused about their sexuality yes. or who are even if they're straight and they just are with uh they're they don't have like a fulfilling relationship at that time or something like that. There are so many different variations of this thing. It's this thing where it's like I'm a lesbian, I want to be in a relationship with you and for whatever reason this other girl whether she's straight by closeted lesbian herself whatever she's just like not willing to meet you in the middle right and that keeps happening to her even in the lesbian's mind in my place i'm gonna say like i was always just like yeah we're just really we're just really good friends and then like and i would it would just like not even dawn on me and then like at a certain point it would be like why why do I feel so drained emotionally all of the time? And oh, because like, I'm in an unfulfilling romantic relationship. This is actually really disturbing. Kiss me. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, okay, that's fine. Don't, you don't have to, you know, like that there shouldn't, but we need boundaries. D- right? Yeah. We need like, to like disconnect this a little even bit. Even if we were dating, we, we should have boundaries. Like friendships should have boundaries. That's, I think that like karma needs to have better boundaries in her life so in this issue it is clear that danny knows sean is a lesbian right and she again doesn't quite say it but is like basically there was an empty seat and sean's like i was hoping a friend would come but she didn't and danny's like a friend or a girlfriend and sean is like I was kind of hoping a girlfriend, but we talked about it and she's not sure she's like that. Kitty. Kitty. (laughs) It's your MO, Kitty. (laughs) But like, that's how you know they did have sex. Yeah. Is that exchange. Because they had that conversation after they had sex. Yes. And Kitty's like, you know, I had fun, but like, I just don't really know if I'm like really into women like this. I just, you know, let's just, let's just like keep it the way it was or whatever. And Sean's just like, I need some space. Sigh. I think like finally yeah. puts up the, like, I need a little space. She's moment. like, listen, you know what? I bought you a ticket to the graduation. Maybe you shouldn't come. Yeah. Like, cause Sean's not surprised that she's not coming. Uh-huh. She's not. She's like, also, uh, kitty. <laughs> Woof. Kate. Woof. Do this to us? Kate, get it together. So hopefully she now has. We'll see. We'll see. Story's still developing. (laughs) So Sean is hired as the school librarian at Xavier's and as the French teacher. She also advises the students who are too young to be like on a real squad, which makes sense because she's raised her siblings. Like she's good with little kids. But for the most part, she's just kind of in the background in this book. When Rain does leave because her affair with a student is exposed, Sean actually goes and tries to convince her to come back and is like, look, I know Danny's really mad at you, but like, talk to her. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've all known each other a really long time. 
You're, and this is like a moment where I'm like, okay, Sean, but like she shouldn't be teaching. I'm sorry. Like, like she should not like, be teaching anymore. Like, That's something that we can't argue. I like, think Sean is just under duress because North Star has been murdered. Don't worry about it. We'll get to that next week. And Wolfsbane has been fired. So suddenly Karma is managing both of their squads. Yeah, she takes on every job after this, basically, which is once again boundaries. And she's just going crazy. So she wants, like, she's like, Rain, can you please come back? I can't teach two squadrons. And Rain's like, I do not think it would be appropriate. Which, like, it you're right. Be. Stay away. <laughs> Good instinct for once in your fucking life. It's also not appropriate to leave Karma to do all of the jobs. Right. So somebody has to step in. And guess what? They hire Magma. Which, like, <laughs> you know what? In a pinch, I'll take it. <laughs> and then Northstar comes back to life. So it's fine. Right. It's complicated. Again, we'll the get to it next week. The two are back. Well, also, the thing that's kind of cute is, like, Sean does, you know, I'm not, as we know, on this, I, I find Anol kind of annoying, but he has a cute relationship with Sean. That's right. Especially after Jean-Paul is killed because, like, Anol had con con confided in Jean-Paul about being gay and, like, Jean-Paul was, like, his gay mentor and then got horribly murdered in front of all the students by Wolverine. Again, don't worry about it. We'll get to it next week. <sighs> So, like, Sean tries to step in to help, but it's whatever. You know, and this storyline just kind of, again, she lurks in the background. The decimation happens. She's around. Even after Danny gets fired because she got decimated, there's not a ton. Which is, like... Which is crazy. Well, I mean, like, Emma justifies it as, like, you're not safe here, but it doesn't It doesn't work. And they they walk it back pretty quickly with, like, Cyclops, you know, trying to get Danny back in the, in the mix. Mm -hmm. But... So all of the bad stuff happens, like the school bus exploding and everything else. She basically is just in the background for all of this stuff and is not an important character. She finally becomes, I would say, for the first time in her publication history, period, an important character in the Zebwell's New Mutants in 2009. That's right. And I've talked about this story to some extent on the podcast because I love it. I think now might be a good time for us to pause for the Cerebro character file so that we can just like do all of that now and then come back to talk about the 21st century history of karma post-decimation and get into reader questions. Does that work for you? Does that sound mm -hmm. good? I think that's probably... I'm like realizing we're like about at the two hour mark and we definitely need to get to the character file yeah, yeah, yeah. at some point. So, Okay. So we will now pause for the Cerebro character file on Xi'an Ma and then come back for more with Sarah Century on everyone's favorite mind-controlling lesbian. <laughs> Which, like, you do have to specify when you're, you looking, at Chris, specify when you're looking at a Chris Claremont story. There are, you know, there's options. Stay tuned and we will be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Xi'an Ma, called Shan, S-H-A-N, by her friends, but best known by the codename Karma, was the original leader of the New Mutants. Created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller, she is a Vietnamese refugee with the mutant power to telepathically possess other people. Written out early in the run of the New Mutants' ongoing title, she reached new prominence in the 21st century as the first confirmed lesbian character in the X-Men franchise, but has never quite managed to break out as a leading lady. She stars in the current run of New Mutants by Vita Ayala and Rod Rice. Debuting in 1980's Marvel Team-Up 100, Shan is forced to take desperate measures when her younger siblings, Leong and Nga, are kidnapped by her evil uncle, the crime lord general Win Yap Khoi. Though she does not like to use her mutant power as she sees it as a violation, she's influenced by the Daily Bugle's reporting and believes Spider-Man is a villain. 
justifying her actions this way, she possesses him and tries to use him to rescue her siblings. After a conflict with the Fantastic Four, Shan explains her backstory. She and Tran were born the children of a morally righteous South Vietnamese colonel, the elder set of two sets of twins, with Leong and Nga being significantly younger. They led privileged lives, but when the conflict between North and South Vietnam escalated, Tran was attacked by a Viet Cong soldier. Shan spontaneously manifested her mutant power, possessing the soldier and saving Tran's life. Tran, realizing he had the same ability, then possessed the soldier and took pleasure in forcing the man to kill himself. Tran went to their uncle, General Koi, and told him about the power, boasting of his eagerness to use it, whereas Shan was afraid. During the fall of Saigon, Tran was rescued by General Koi, and the rest of the family was thrown into the chaos. Using her power, Shan helped them get onto one of the refugee boats, but starvation weakened her, and she was unable to protect them when Thai pirates boarded the vessel. The pirates murdered the men on the boat, including Shan's father, raped her mother, and then raped Shan herself. Shan's mother died the day the U.S. Navy rescued the surviving refugees. Shan, at 18 years old, arrived in the United States and became the legal guardian to Leong and Nga. She sought help from Father Bowen, a priest she had known from his missionary work in Vietnam, who now ran a refugee relief agency for survivors of the boat people crisis. Shan had settled into her difficult new life before General Koi kidnapped the younger twins, using them as leverage in an attempt to force Shan to serve him as Tran does. Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four are moved by Shan's tragic story and decide to help her, but Tran uses his experience with the shared possession power to possess the entire Fantastic Four team. To save Spider-Man's life, Shan psionically kills Tran and absorbs his mind and soul into her own psyche. In 1982's Marvel graphic novel number four by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud, called The New Mutants, Shan is put in contact with Charles Xavier by Reed Richards. Xavier wants her to become a student at his school, but she protests that she must continue to care for Leon and Nga. To entice her, Xavier offers her a job as secretary at the school, and she accepts, though instead of living in Xavier's herself, she rents an apartment to give Leon and Nga a private family environment. Together with Xavier and his associate, Dr. Moira McTaggart, Sean helps recruit the rest of the new class, most of whom are significantly younger than her. Rain Sinclair, Roberto DaCosta, Danny Moonstar, and Sam Guthrie. She's named leader of the team. In the first issue of the New Mutants' ongoing title, Danny accidentally pulls Shan's traumatic memories of the boat refugee crisis from her mind. Shan is furious and attacks Danny, but dance teacher Stevie Hunter manages to calm the situation. A few issues later, Danny is kidnapped by Viper, a leader of the neo-Nazi terrorist organization Hydra. Shan tries to get information from General Koi, but can't bring herself to torture him. Instead, she agrees that she will work for him for one year, as Tran once did, if he gives them the information they require to save Danny. On the mission, however, an unknown telepath attacks Shan psychically. Viper sets her headquarters to self-destruct after the team rescues Danny, and Shan, who's been separated from the group, is apparently killed in the explosion. This is 1983's New Mutants number 6. Karma does not return until issue 29 in 1985. In this story, which revisits a plot about a mutant gladiatorial ring from Anne Nascenti's 1984 miniseries Beauty and the Beast, Sean is revealed to be the new host of Amal Farouk, the Shadow King, a bodiless telepathic villain who is Charles Xavier's archenemy. The Shadow King is established to be the mysterious telepath who attacked Sean back in issue 6, and now he has used her powers to build a new criminal empire. It takes the new mutants a moment to recognize Sean, both because they believe her to be dead and because she looks very different. Farouk, indulging his own appetites in her body, has caused her to gain hundreds of pounds. The New Mutants chase Shan to Madripoor, where they team up with Storm, also a longtime enemy of Farouk. Magic and Warlock, newer members of the team, manage to free their teammates from Farouk's control, and Shan feels emboldened to battle Farouk on the astral plane, eventually defeating him and banishing him from her body. When she sees the condition of her body with its extreme weight gain, she becomes suicidal. Her friends encourage her to continue to live. Storm takes the teens to the Greek Isles for a vacation on their way back to New York, and there they're kidnapped to Asgard for a plot you don't need to worry about. 
Sean is accidentally thrown back in time, landing alone about six months in Asgard's past in a brutal desert landscape. She decides to allow herself to die, but a little girl appears and begs her for help. Sean uses her powers to secure food for herself and the girl, and travels the desert with her for months until she finds the new mutants. By this point, she has lost all the weight she gained while possessed by Farouk. It turns out the little girl is an illusion created by Carnilla the Norn Queen, don't worry about it, and Loki sends everyone back home. Shan hangs around in the background after that, declining to resume leadership of the New Mutants. During the 1986 franchise-wide event Mutant Massacre, Leung and Nga disappear, and the apartment Shan shares with them explodes. The newly reformed Magneto, now the headmaster at Xavier's, promises Shan he will help her find the twins, but Shan is impatient and attempts to use the Hellfire Club's resources by possessing Tessa, Sebastian Shaw's attaché. When Tessa can't turn up anything, Shan decides her only resource is her evil uncle, General Coy. In 1987's New Mutants 54, Claremont's final issue on the title, she leaves Danny a letter explaining she has gone to work with General Coy in exchange for his help finding Leong Nga. She asks Danny not to attempt to follow or contact her. Sean next appears in 1989's Wolverine No. 4 by Chris Claremont and John Buscema. Now working for General Coy in Madripoor, Shan secretly betrays him to help Wolverine, operating under his thinly disguised identity as the Detective Patch and rival crime lord Jessan Hoan, alias Tiger Tiger. Tiger and Koi agree to share Madripoor and reach a careful detente. The following year, Sean returns in Wolverine 27, now written by Joe Duffy. In this arc, Sean attempts to save the children of the village of Rumika from agents of the secret Project Lazarus, but fails to possess all of the Project's soldiers. She's forced to watch as the children are slaughtered in front of her eyes. When Shan realizes that General Koi was involved in this massacre, she cuts ties with him for good, threatening his life in an effort to ensure his behavior improves. Three years later, in 1993, she turns up in the X-Force and New Warriors crossover Young Hunt by Fabian Misiesa. Teaming up with Danny and the former Hellion empath, she battles the sadistic mutant gamblers called the Upstarts, but is captured. They're rescued by X-Force, a paramilitary organization comprising former members of the New Mutants and their new allies. Four years later, in the 1997 Beast miniseries by writers Keith Giffen and Terry Cavanaugh, she finally travels down Leong at the Hellfire Club, where new black king Shinobi Shaw has been experimenting on them. They're already gone, however, as Shinobi has sold them to Viper and the interdimensional sorceress Spiral. Spiral has used her body shop to technomagically transform the twins into brainwashed adult supervillains on behalf of Viper, who seeks revenge on Sean and her family because she was once enslaved by General Koi through trans possession power. Leong and Nga are rescued, but Beast tells Sean that Spiral's transformations are beyond his capability to reverse. Frustrated, Sean departs with her siblings, determined to find a way to restore them to childhood and sanity. A few months later, Sean appears in the miniseries New Mutants Truth or Death by Ben Robb, where she joins her former classmates for a reunion. Their younger selves suddenly appear via time travel and are horrified to learn magic is destined to die of the legacy virus. They decide to change the past, and while the modern X-Force objects, Sean tries to help the kids and briefly battles her friends. In 1998's X-Force 75, part of John Francis Moore and Adam Polina's road trip era, the team encounters Sean at a thinly-veiled depiction of the Burning Man Festival. Sean has dramatically altered her appearance. She has a bright pink crew cut, has gotten a few piercings, and is dressed provocatively. She's attending with her friends, a pair of lesbian filmmakers, and it's strongly implied that she's a lesbian herself. Sean mentions she found a doctor who was able to reverse Spiral's transformation of Leong and Nga. Four years later, in the 2002 miniseries Mechanics by Chris Claremont, Sean has returned to her previous appearance and is pursuing a master's degree in library science at the University of Chicago. She reunites with fellow Xavier student Kitty Pride, who's pursuing her degree in astrophysics, and the two bond in a way that borders on the romantic. When their lives are threatened by the anti-mutant student organization called Purity, they almost kiss. 
From here, Sean pivots into the relaunch of New Mutants by Nunzio DeFilippis and Christina Weir, eventually retitled New X-Men Academy X, which now follows Danny Moonstar as she teaches the next generation of students at Xavier's. Danny surprises Sean at her graduation and convinces Sean to return to the school to become an instructor as well. Though she doesn't do combat training, Sean proves popular with the students and suggests to Xavier that the students be the ones to choose their own advisors. She's affirmatively established in this run to be a lesbian character, the first in the X-Men franchise and at the time the most prominent at Marvel. Danny tries to hook her up with Luna DePaula, a local coffee shop owner, and Shan resents the attempt at matchmaking. When the student body is organized into formal training squads, Shan is given the responsibility of supervising students too young for combat. After the murder of Northstar, don't worry about it, he gets better, we'll cover it next week, and the firing of Wolfsbane, don't worry about it, Shan is suddenly put in charge of two combat teams in addition to her previous duties and is overwhelmed. She tries but fails to convince Rain to try returning to the school. After the decimation, when all but about 200 mutants are depowered, Shan is one of the few to retain her powers. She remains at the school despite Emma Frost's dismissal of Danny, who has been decimated. When Apocalypse comes to offer the so-called 198 his power, she's tempted but ultimately persuades the others to reject him. In the wake of the 2007 franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, Shan moves to San Francisco with the rest of the X-Men, but remains a background character. In the story Manifest Destiny by future Marvel editor-in-chief C.B. Sabalski, Shan grieves the apparent death of Kitty Pride and begins training in the use of her telepathy with Emma Frost. Leong and Nga find her crying with a photo of Kitty and demand that Aunt Kitty come to visit them. Shan is furious and lashes out with her powers, which she immediately regrets. She decides she must learn to better control herself. In the story X-Men Worlds Apart by Christopher Yost, Shan is briefly possessed again by the Shadow King, but is rescued by Storm. In 2009, writer Zeb Wells launches a new volume of New Mutants, with a greater focus on karma than ever before. Sean and Danny end up entangled with the Omega-level mutant Legion, Xavier's mentally ill son who manifests countless personalities with their own superpowers. During the ordeal, Sean is enraged and uses Magic's soul sword to slay one of the evil altars. Magic takes the blame for this, and Sean keeps the truth a secret. In the 2010 franchise-wide event Second Coming, the reformed New Mutant squad attack a headquarters of the anti-mutant organization called The Right. The Right's leader Cameron Hodge resists Sean's attempt at possession and skewers her leg, damaging it so grievously that she's forced to have it amputated. Madison Jeffries, one of the chief mutant scientists on Utopia, outfits her with a new bionic prosthesis. As the Wells run on New Mutants concludes, the team travels to Limbo, where they encounter a group of dangerous mutants who turn out to be the Inferno Babies, the babies who were supposed to be sacrificed back in the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno. Don't worry about it. They grew up in Limbo like magic. They're evil now. It's cool. Read the story. And are captured. Shan psychically bonds with one of the Inferno babies, the mute blind cyborg called Face, and is able to show him what has been done to him by government agents. Horrified, Face attacks his teammates and frees Shan. She's teleported away by magic, and realizes to her disgust that all of these events were set in motion by Ilyana so she could get revenge on the Elder Gods of Limbo. Shan threatens to tell everyone what she's discovered, but Ilyana calls her bluff. This is the end of the Zebwell's run. Deciding to retire from active duty again to take care of Face, Shan fades into the background again. She sides with Wolverine in the 2011 event Schism, believing the new Jean Grey school will be a safer environment for Face, Leon, and Nga. There she becomes a member of a new X-Men team in Marjorie Liu's run on Astonishing X-Men, where the character gets significant focus for the first time since Wells. A major plot in this run involves the villain Susan Hachi, a billionaire businesswoman who uses nanomachines to seize control of Shan and use her as an operative. It turns out Susan is actually Daokoima, Shan's long-lost half-sister, born to her father's mistress. This story significantly retcons Shan's origin, establishing her father as a corrupt man like his brother General Koi, and more importantly establishing that he had never joined his family on the boat. 
Instead, he had faked his death in the fall of Saigon and gone into hiding, and Susan has attacked Karma and the X-Men to lure their father out into the open. Shan and her sister reach something of an understanding, but their father shoots Susan in the head, killing her instantly. With Susan's death, Shan inherits her business and becomes a billionaire. The other main Shan plot in this run involves her attempts to bond with the homophobic Shi'ar assassin Warbird, don't worry about it, and there is a suggestion of attraction between them. The title was canceled with 2013's issue 68, and Karma again fades into the background. In 2015's Uncanny X-Men 600 by Brian Michael Bendis, we see that Shan has joined the group called the Utopians, who live in the ruins of the X-Men's former home Utopia. They're convinced to join Cyclops, Emma Frost, and Magic at their new rogue Xavier school. Shan makes her next significant appearance in the 2018 miniseries New Mutants Dead Souls by Matthew Rosenberg, where she appears to have turned to evil before it becomes clear that her mind is being influenced by the lingering presence of her twin brother Tran. This plot doesn't really go anywhere because it ends in a cliffhanger before the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, where Shan is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Rejoining the new mutant squad, she has an adventure with her old classmates in Shi'ar space before dedicating herself alongside Danny to teaching the young mutants of Krakoa. In the new run of New Mutants by Vita Ayala and Rod Rice, Shan has emerged as a main character again, and her longtime intimate friendship with Danny seems to be slowly evolving into a romance. With the Krakoan ability of resurrection on the table, Shan decides to undergo the ritual called the Crucible, dueling Danny to the death so that she and Tran can be resurrected in separate bodies, giving Tran a second chance like the other former villains on the island. Danny is honored to be the one to help liberate Shan from this long struggle with her brother. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back! Welcome back to the show, already in progress, with Sarah Century, writer, critic, lesbian. <laughs> 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 I'm just trying to think of your various hats. We are here talking about Karma, a character I love, but who you probably have gleaned from this point in the podcast, hasn't had very many good stories. So I was like, why don't we do the character file before we get into the good stories? The two that exist, besides Vidal's current one. Zeb Wells makes Sean one of the protagonists of his run on New Mutants in 2009, which is really cool. It's unexpected. The book is really about... Sean, Danny, Sam, and Ilyana. And then mm. Doug once Doug shows up. But that's complicated because Necrotia happens right in the smack in the exactly, middle. Exactly, yeah. In this story, the first arc of it is like Sean and Danny are dispatched to a town to find. <laughs> it's like they're basically like, let's go investigate this, you know, whatever's going on over here. And um, it's Legion. Legion's what's going on in that town. They get sucked <laughs> into his brain. It's like, you know, there's a lot going on. It's a yeah. good story. I really, like, I don't want to, you know, parcel out everything about the Zebos New Mutants run because I do think that people should just read it because it fucking rules. But the critical thing for Sean is that basically this little girl, Marcy, who was also sucked into Legion's mind, is being menaced by all of his out-of-control alternate personalities. And... Ilyana shows up in the mind space as well and uses the soul sword to kill one of the violent personalities. It later turns out in a reveal that actually Sean did it because she was so angry because it turns out that the little girl is also one of Legion's personalities now because one of the altars killed her and she's like a copy. It's, it's you know, it's like a metaphysical thing. But the point is the little girl was murdered. Sean is furious Ilyana hands her the soul sword and she uses it to kill the altar. 
Kavita Rao, who's like asking her about this in the present, is like, and then Ilyana killed the altar, she told us. You know, that was dangerous, but, you know, it seems like it all worked out okay. And Sean's about to be like, wait, I did that. And then mm-hmm. elects not to because Ilyana already covered for her. And it creates this weird little secret between Sean and Ilyana. And this is after Ilyana has come back from the dead without her soul. So she's not especially moral, let's no. say. She's really fun, though. <laughs> it's so much fun. And they end up in limbo where they get into a conflict with the Inferno babies, the babies from Inferno who have grown up in limbo and become evil weapons of the U.S. government. Don't worry about it. It's a cool... This storyline's really fucking cool. Just read this storyline. It's so fucking good. Just read it. But the gist is, Ilyana has basically arranged a whole sequence of events so that she can get Legion to eliminate the Elder Gods of Limbo from existence. And Sean has been manipulated the entire time to serve Ilyana's purpose. Like, right down to, I had you use the soul sword in Legion's brain so that we could reconnect with Legion, you and I. Like, it's, like, all very, like, dark. Sean realizes that Ilyana set this all in motion for revenge and confronts her about it. And Ilyana is basically like, yeah, I fucking dare you to tell anyone. Yeah, you can't. (laughs) And Sean's like, fuck, I can't. She's right. I literally can't. Yeah. It's really good. I like those two's interactions. I think there's like a little while where they're kind of pitted against each other, like right after this. And I guess a little bit in this story too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but it's, they're a cool, like in the sense that Sean is like the most morally upright apart from her time in Madge Report. Like it's, it's, (laughs) but that's the thing is like, it's, it's almost, it feels like Zebwell is going, who is this person? Because she's been around for a long time at this point. It's been 29 years, but we don't really know much about her. And it feels like the takeaway is that, like, she's a a person who really tries to be good and who is, at core, a really good person. But every now and then, and this goes back to her first appearance when she just, like, fucking devours her brother's soul to stop him. Like, sometimes she's just like, you know what? We got to do the the violent, hard, bad thing here. The justice of the streets. And (laughs) there are two other things that happen to her in this run that are important. One is in the second coming event, she is attacked by Cameron Hodge. Not to go back to the Candy Mm. Southern of it all. But Cameron Hodge basically skewers her leg with his like metal parts. And her leg is like really fucked up to the point where it has to be amputated And she gets a prosthesis designed by Madison Jeffries. It's pretty cool. It's like, it looks kind of like a Gundam foot. Like it's very, she Mm -hmm. hates it at first when she sees it. She's like, I wanted something like sexy. And Madison Jeffries (laughs) is like, this is sexy. I think it's hot. (laughs) Yeah. She's just like, you're extremely strange. But what's interesting, especially because it's juxtaposed with Hellion losing his hands in the same event. And he's really traumatized about it. And she bounces back pretty quickly. Like, the next storyline, they they go on like a trip, all the new mutants together, and are like getting wasted and having. This is when Sam and Danny make out, and everyone's like, "No!" <laughs> and, um, and Sean's just sitting there, like, "All right, <laughs> okay." But this is right after Sean has shown them all her leg, like has mm-hmm. she like pulls down her jeans and is like, because basically one of them, it might even be Danny. I'd have to go back, but one of them is like, "How far up does it go?" 
<laughs> I need to know for I know. whatever reason. For reasons, right? Oh, we also forgot back in the Weir and DeFilippis arc. Are you going to talk about the barista? Yes. <laughs> a, the barista who is beautiful is such a hilarious end of its time story, right? I went back and read it. I thought it was a barista. She actually owns the coffee shop. <gasps> oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like her place, but she's also like working the counter. I'm like, how is this woman on the market even? Um, yeah. Her but... <laughs> name is Luna. She's sexy. And Danny is like, I wanted to take you out for coffee. And I also wanted to introduce you to this lady who runs the place because last time I was here, she hit on me. Okay. But even that scene, whenever I actually read that for this episode, I was just like, when she sits down and she's like, yeah, I mean, I think that I just got hit on. I looked at the panel again and was just like, Danny, you're flirting in that panel. You are flirting <laughs> like, with her. You're the one who's hitting on someone. I know. <laughs> Basically, like, Sean is like, I'll have a coffee. And Luna's like, that it? And, like, is flirting with Sean. And Sean's <laughs> like, yes, thank you. And Danny's like, I don't know. I just thought, like, and Sean's like, what? You thought that, like, because I'm gay, you would just, like, matchmake me because like kind push of me towards the other queer person yeah like that's kind of offensive i wish you you know and she's like kidding but she's like not kidding yeah but also it's like danny what's going on here why are you trying to hook me up why are you doing this i've had this happen before where it's like no she invites sean out for coffee to introduce yes. Sean to a lesbian. Yes. And it's also, bizarre. It's, it is bizarre. It is something that has totally happened to me many times <laughs> in life. So many people, it, if, the, if you're a lesbian, people, it's, I'm sure it's the same for you. It's like, they're just like, oh, I know that other gay person. You guys should get married. But in this case, it's weird because it's like Danny clearly wants to date both of them and yeah. he's hooking uh, them up instead of dealing with that. Is yeah, 100%. Yes, 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 yes. I'm going to invite you on a coffee date, but oh, I I just want you to maybe like have some matchmaking with this person <laughs> it's just like you're you're just trying to get me to have sex with somebody else so I'm not on the table for you anymore and I feel like that's really strange for you to do right you don't want us to fuck even though you do but like you're afraid to so you want me to fuck this person yeah it's very weird it is very weird speaking as a lesbian something that's happened a bunch of times in my life where it's just it like, feels very real but it's like very bizarre it is a bizarre bizarre moment in the comic yeah for sure anyway oh that that lesbian uh coffee shop owner by the way is then killed by the purifiers god so, god know, cool great i'm just so angry <laughs> we don't okay to be fair we don't know that she was killed but the coffee shop is remember it's like laura yeah. kinney goes on a date there also everybody's on a date basically it's like it's mercury and x23 go out <laughs> for coffee and uh the purifiers blow up the coffee shop to kidnap mercury so that oh they can steal her skin and use it to make predator x right this is the, the purifiers have just gotta go oh yeah i mean like yeah that i actually if you want to hear me go in depth on uh this storyline i read it for what I guess appeared on Comics XF. And I actually liked it more than I thought I would. I had never read it because, except for I had read like the scene where Emma like breaks Kimura's memories as mm -hmm. like to punish her, but I had never read the other stuff. And I liked it except for like it's a lot of teenage girls like nude in peril, which is Always. just not. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a big part of that run, honestly. That's like part of why it's just not, I don't know, it's not for me. And yeah. I don't know. Anyway, all that to say, we don't know if Luna the lesbian 
coffee shop lady was killed in that come explosion. Back. But she has not been seen since. It'd be cool if she was a mutant. <laughs> it would be cool if she was a mutant. Or if she wasn't, you know, it'd be just nice. I think that I liked her. Honestly, like she should just be like, oh, I have a new like they go to they go to Manhattan and she's like got a new she's like got a Starbucks franchise now and and is married and doesn't have to deal with any of this weird third party flirting stuff. Like, hi, Danny. It's nice to see you. It's like, oh, I remember your friend. Yeah, I know. And like, it's like, but but it should be that like Sean and Danny are there like awkwardly on a date and like then Luna rounds the corner. Luna's like, like go oh, back to you two it. are still together and like oh, that's so great i'm so glad to see it it's been a while you know bring back luna yeah <laughs> i'm into it luna. i'm into it you can't you kill just... the lesbians you've got to bring her back the other thing that happens to sean besides losing her leg in the zeb wells run is one of the inferno babies now an adult is called face and is this mutant whose face exploded basically when he first used his power. And so he has this whole kind of bionic apparatus implanted in his head. Sean uses her power to let him see through her eyes what's been done to him, like how he's been like cyberized into a weapon and whatnot. And he is so horrified that he betrays the rest of them and helps the new mutants. And then Yana drags Sean away. Like, we have to do other stuff. And she's like, you, you, you left face behind. And Yana's like, yeah, I don't care. We've got stuff to do. Mm-hmm. And Sean's really upset about it. So after the Zebwell runs concludes, we see that Sean has basically decided to become face's guardian. Endlessly doing this, basically. Like, yeah, she just... just taking on more responsibility. And so that's how she gets written out because she's n- she doesn't continue into the DNA run. Mm-hmm. They're like, just give her somebody to take care of. She'll be busy. Yeah, give her a person in need to take care of and write her out, which is just like how it always is when you're not one of the like three writers that have ever given a shit about this character. Mm-hmm. Huge bummer. Yeah, huge bummer. And that's the last of her for a while, honestly. She comes back back in a couple like weird little cameos right during like utopia times yeah yeah like she's around on utopia she's not on any of the teams but she like hangs out and then when the schism happens she decides to go to the Jean Grey school with Wolverine because she thinks that it's a safer place for face. Like she wants him to learn in like a good environment and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So she begins teaching at that school, but she's not a character in Wolverine and the X-Men. Like she just exists in the background after Avengers versus X-Men. There's that really weird issue in the Bendis run, like all new X-Men 40 where she and boom, boom and mask. And uh, who else is it? It's like, I just Googled it because I'm like, who are the Utopians? It's Elixir, Random, Box, Madison Jeffries, who made her leg, Boom Boom, Mask, and Sean are all living in the ruins of Utopia because they, like, want to be left in peace or whatever. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Basically, Scott and Emma and Yana convince them to come to the new Xavier school that the rogue 
post Phoenix five X-Men have set up. Oh my God. Can you imagine how annoyed you would be if you were any one of those characters and uh, I mean, Scott and Emma showed up being like, come over here. I'd be like, come join us. Like, oh no. God, get out of here. <laughs> like, but they I'm go, so they're like, sure. I'm in, you I know? Guess. So why I guess. Not? I guess you do have running water there, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine it was like a particularly great time in the ruins of Utopia. But no. And so they arrive in Utopia just in time to get sucked into Age of X. Oh, actually, that's before the Utopians, because that's before Avengers vs. X-Men. What am I talking about? Because that's the carry run, because Age of X is the carry run. Oh, my God, you're right. I was. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're thinking absolutely. of Age of X-Men. The reason she isn't a cast member in Wolverine and the X-Men is because... She's part of Marjorie Liu's Astonishing X-Men in 2012. This is one of the weirdest X-Men teams ever assembled. This yes. is, it's surrounding North Star's wedding, which, come back next week for my thoughts on that. <laughs> but it starts with issue 49 and runs to issue 68-ish, mm -hmm. I think. Like, Marjorie Liu only really does about 20 issues before the book is canceled, which is unfortunate because I think that the book is good. It's just odd. The team. It's so is, strange. Yeah. It's very weird. It's Karma, Iceman, North Star, Gambit, Warbird, the Shi'ar alien. Do not worry about it. Mm -hmm. And Cecilia Reyes, who's like flirting with Gambit. It's a very weird time. Very strange. I can't see that working, but I do really like Cecilia. So I love Cecilia and I was glad to have her back. So I was fine with that. Whatever, man. Like, go for it. You know, it. and Gambit needed to do something. True. Because yeah. he and Rogue were broken up at that time. And then he's so. like just useless guy. Like, it's yeah. literally whenever he's broken up with Rogue, you're just like. <laughs> he accomplishes nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's he, he. This is somebody who truly, truly needs a partner <laughs> to direct their yeah, lives. Absolutely. And our Anna Marie is the one to do it. So this is the only other time post-Wells, pre-Ayala, that anyone's ever attempted to do something with karma. There is a specific arc in this astonishing book. This is, we should note, the second time a woman has ever written the character after mm -hmm. Joe Duffy, and the first time an Asian woman has ever written the character. Mm -hmm. So that definitely informs a lot of this arc. You get a lot of scenes where... Sean thinks about her past. There's interesting stuff about like the model minority in this arc. Mm -hmm. The villain of the arc, a businesswoman named Susan Hachi, says at one point to the X-Men, she's like, oh, isn't it hard to have to be the model minority? Like, isn't it hard to, you, you, you know, you give an inch, they take a mile. You always have to be perfect, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Susan is... Very, very evil. She <laughs> just no holds barred. She is evil, evil. She's very Adrian Frost. Honestly, she feels kind of like the same character on some level. If we really think about it, like she's a heretofore unknown sibling because, oh, by the way, her real name is Dao Koi Ma and she's Karma's long lost half sister. Oh, my God. <laughs> And Hachi, by the way, is a Japanese name. So maybe her mother was Japanese or maybe maybe it's just an alias. And I'll take she's it. taking advantage of white people in New York who don't know the difference. Which That's like, fine. That, that, I mean, that would be interesting if that was like a thing that happened in the arc. But we don't it doesn't really ever go there. She could just be half Japanese. We don't actually know. But anyway, so Susan Hachi, real name, Dao Koi Ma, which again, the Koi part doesn't. It's fine. Whatever. It's Let's fine. Let's just move on. You know what? 
She is a billionaire who has a business that is based around nanotechnology. She has invented these nanotech worms that can possess people, much like Karma's power does. She reveals that she was a telepath, but a very low-level telepath, but she was decimated on M-Day. And she uses her nanomachines to take over Karma and use her as, you know, an operative. Susan, there's not a lot to her. She's kind of a, a she's just kind of a villain, but she's fun. Because she really just, like, has no compunction about just killing the shit out of people. Yeah. I do like her. Yeah, I like her, too. Like, she's she's very much a one-arc villain. You know what yeah. I mean? But her ultimate scheme is, like, I'm going to kill all of New York with my nanomachines and uh, somehow turn that into profit. It's very, like, step one, yeah. <laughs> massacre the people of New York. Step two, question mark step and it's profit. also like you you're already rich like what she's what already is, a billionaire so yeah, yeah it's not clear exactly what her thing is we get her backstory which is and this is the huge retcon apparently sean's dad was actually a really bad guy and sean knows this about him which is not in keeping with the stuff from the 80s because we find out that sean knew about dow and that they met once when she was a child and that basically her father had a mistress and had had a child with the mistress. She's like, Susan lives only for chaos. She's a lot like our father that way. And it's like, that's not, that's not how the story used to be. But whatever. Right. But here's the thing. No one's ever done anything with Karma's backstory. So you might as well do something with it. Right? Like, I don't have a... Except for it's like, this is just another traumatizing thing for her to have I know. through. Which I know. is like, in the beginning, at least she had her parents, you know, as being like something that seemed like it was decent and good. And now it's just like, so, yeah, I guess like your first like 20, what? I mean, I guess all of the years have just been bad. <laughs> yeah. Also, like this story retcons that her father has been alive all this time in hiding. Yeah. Which is what? Like, that's really... <laughs> <laughs> that's right and it turns out basically that Dal has done all of this in order to lure their father out into the open so that she can kill their father because when Dal was a child her mother brought her to see Colonel Ma and was like please help us we need help and he was like, I can't help you. I can barely help myself. I know too much about my brother's evil dealings and he wants me dead. And then he's like, I told you never to come and to, to come to me. I told you never to come here. And you've already spoken to my wife. That's to the mistress. Apparently, Dao, now Susan, when she met Sean, tried to stab Sean. So they haven't had, you know, even as children, there's this, I want to be his real daughter and you are and I resent you thing. But then in front of Dao, yes, Colonel Ma shoots his mistress in the head. So let's not, you know, ever forget that, I guess, when we're talking about this character. Who like, now retroactively ooh. is, yeah, like a, an absolute scumbag. Yeah. And he sells Dao to a sweatshop. He sure does. Lots of selling happening in these stories. It's honestly like it is a this is a wild thing to retcon into. Like it would be one thing if the point of the story was Sean like it was like Deadly Genesis style, like Sean's discovering all of this about her father. 
Right. But in this story, she knows all of this already. Not the part about killing the mistress, but like she knows about, she knows her father was a bad guy, that he had this other family. And she resents him because in this version, he put them on the boat where all the bad stuff happened. Which is like. (laughs) And so when they're reunited, he's like, what about your mother? And she's like, she died on the boat. And he's like really perturbed by that. Hmm. But the whole thing, it, it's it's very odd. I like Susan. I like how Sean is characterized throughout this arc. Yeah, her characterization is really good here. There's a great moment where she and Kitty take Leung and Nga mm-hmm. to the museum. The museum. Their museum date. It's a date. It's a date. It's a date. <laughs> but at this point, it's clear that Sean like knows it's not a date. Right. But like Kitty doesn't realize that it is a date. It's like a very... It's just very weird. Mm-hmm. But it feels very much like a sequel to Mechanics. Yeah. Like you can tell that Marjorie Lou read like every appearance of this character before writing this arc. Except maybe for the very first one. Yeah. Because <laughs> the stuff with the dad is just not yeah. it's just not consistent. But maybe that was just a choice. I mean, as T.D. Howard is always saying when she's on this show, like continuity is an argument. You know what I mean? It's not gospel. Like you yeah. use what makes sense for your story. But this this story actively contradicts Karma's origins. So, it, you know, it feels like either a deliberate choice or a mistake. But basically the story ends with Sean convincing Susan, like, stop trying to kill everybody. She, like, uses her telepathy to share. They have kind of a Maddie and Jean at the end of Inferno moment. Mm-hmm. Where, like, Sean shows, because, like, Susan Dao thinks that like Sean had this charmed life. And so Sean like links their minds and shows her the rape on the boat. Like we see it's the most on panel we've seen since that first issue of new mutants. Right. She shows her, you know, when she gained 500 pounds because she was possessed by the shadow King, she shows her, her killing Tran. She shows her all of this stuff. And Dao is like, I didn't, understand or whatever and they're like having this moment sort of where it's like we both had horrible lives because of our terrible family yeah and then sean's father who by the way is never named in this story that's the one thing that bugs me is that like they don't they still don't give that character a name but uh he shoots dow in the head from behind while they're talking and sean's just like she was your daughter and he's like you know well and so that's which makes her my responsibility or whatever now, to be clear, she was unbelievably, she was an unbelievably evil mass murdering sociopath. Mm-hmm. But so is he, right? Like, but so is he, apparently. So like, yeah, it's, it, and he gets carted off to prison. And the X-Men are like, so... <laughs> and Sean, by the way, during this mission was saying to Wolverine, like, I think after this one, I'm done. Because I'm just, I don't enjoy this anymore. But she finds a new purpose now, basically being an X-Man. The ending is basically they ask her, they're like, are you going to tell Leung that your father is alive? And she's like, no, I am going to tell them about Susan, though, because they should know about Susan. And that's the end. Kids, I'm going to tell you about your aunt, Susan. <laughs> no, it's their it's their sister. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she's Still their half sister. Right. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. I know. This <sighs> is the Leong and Nga problem is they feel like they're Karma's kids, but they're actually her siblings. They just haven't right. aged since the 80s. Exactly. They're just, they, they are not allowed to age. They should be, like, quite honestly, they should be like New Mutants age. They should be Gabby's age. 
And if we see them on Krakoa, I hope that they get soap opera aged up to be like 14, 15. Because it's Yeah, time. might as well. Might as well at this point. Like then Karma's schedule will free up just a little bit. Yeah, so that she and Danny can things. go on dates. Yeah. That then leads into the Utopians arc, which we already talked about. I just forgot that Marjorie Lou was before the Utopians because honestly, this whole period around Avengers versus X-Men is... I was so checked out. I was checked out. I was not reading. I read back in retrospect and was like, I can see why this was all deal breaking. Yeah, I read. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I like the Marjorie Lou Astonishing. I love the Zabo's New Mutants. But as I said to Mike Carey last week, I wasn't reading this all as it came out necessarily because it was... just you know, not the time for it. Just not. There, it was compounded with all of these other runs, too, that I didn't always love. I was honestly checked out of comics entirely at that yeah, time for a while because for sure. this is right after the New 52 also. So I stopped reading DC. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after this, she's gone again for a while. And then uh, she is, as we said, the villain of New Mutants Dead Souls, which is a miniseries from 2018 by Matthew Rosenberg, which is actually pretty good. But she's influenced by Tran the whole time and is acting against them. So it's not really a karma story. At all, yeah. That leads right into Disassembled and Age of X-Man, which you don't have to worry about. Yeah, hit fast forward on that one. (laughs) And then we're on Krakoa. And now she's on Krakoa. And... Vita Ayala is doing more with her than anyone's anyone done ever. since Zeb and Marjorie. So, and frankly, more than anyone ever because she's finally, it's like all of those storylines from the 80s that never went anywhere are finally being addressed and resolved, which is exciting. Very exciting, yeah. But it's wild that those storylines, like you and me and Vita were born when those storylines were happening. Yeah. And, and now Vita's writing now. those storylines. Yeah. <laughs> like the resolution for them. So it's yeah. a while. I mean, it's, it's you know, I was looking at, um, I was comparing her to Cannonball in terms of appearances, right? I was like, how many Zaladanes do they each have? And <laughs> Sean has appeared roughly 19 Zaladanes, a little more than that, but not mm-hmm. much. And Sam has appeared 57 and a quarter Zaladanes. Mm, mm-hmm. So 57 and a quarter versus 19 and a third. I think that sort of says it all, right? The numbers speak for themselves. They paint a picture I don't love. Yeah. Um, but I'm very excited about where she's going now. Literally everything that just happened in the wild hunt was amazing. Like that was Karma's story almost. And it was like also the story of Karma and Danny's beautiful relationship. Because even if you like made it to the end of that and you were like, they're just buds. Okay, fine. But like, they're great buds. But also like, they're not just buds. I'm sorry. They're like soulmates, right? Like that's like what that story proved because it's like also Danny was her partner, right? Like through the whole In the Crucible, yeah. Also, and it's paralleled directly with Storm and Callisto. Yeah. Which like talk about gay. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about how there isn't enough on-panel explicit female female stuff in the x line right now and i 100 percent agree i'm 100 percent agreed we were talking about this before we recorded a little bit i think you and i are just like old <laughs> we've in terms we've of like the fandom a lot of droughts and we became camels like we can store water i truly like i 
last week, like New Mutants 18, I was like well fed. Like, no, they didn't kiss, but I'm just like, I don't need them to kiss. This is still a love story, right? Like, right, but I understand people who really want to see it. And I think that we should see yes. it. With them, with Betsy and Rachel, I think those are the two storylines I would say that I think are there. I don't think we're making them up. I don't think it's subtext. I think that Sean and Danny and Betsy and Rachel are storylines that are happening and that hopefully in the next year we will see those become textual on page please god because i love this character and i'm just like i have been with you since i first saw you in the in the burning man story where <laughs> you had a really short pink hair and you were just smiling and having a fun time with your girlfriends like i have been with this character since day long one, haul so i was literally like 15 when that comic came out and i have just been with her all along and i only can hope <laughs> that someday after all of the horrible torture that she has been put through by writer after writer after writer eventually she gets to kiss a woman jesus goddamn christ like what the <laughs> it's just like so upsetting kind of because it's the same with like rachel where you're, but then it's like with rachel it's like at least rachel has had moments of joy i feel like with karma they're so sparse that it's just like I mean, yeah, the best the best moments is when nobody's actively attacking her or something, yeah. you know, and, or like she's not having to go do terrible things or, yeah. you know, all of that. I just know what an uphill battle it is to like Marjorie Lou was trying to out Iceman during the arc yeah. we're talking about and oh, wasn't sure. allowed to. In our lifetimes, you and I, I mean, you were 10 years old when North Star was finally allowed to come out. Yeah, I was five. And and he then there was the follow up miniseries where he wasn't out. You know, it was just never brought up in our lifetimes. You and I, Jim Shooter declared that no gay people existed in the Marvel Universe. So right. Which was a reflection of bigger censorship laws. So I mean, right. I think that all of that stuff is like, yeah, for sure. It was like an industry standard a lot. It of was. Time, but, but like, you know, I think he also we can say that guy sucks and everything. <laughs> yeah. Like that guy has bad politics. And we know that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not to say that, like, everyone our age feels this way. For me, these books are so much gayer than they ever were ever yeah. in my life before now that I I'm loving it and thriving and, like, my crops are watered. Like, I feel incredible. We also can't hold queer creators to those same standards, right? This is my thing. I do feel that Vita and Leah and Teeny in particular... Vita Ayala, Leah Williams, Teeny Howard, for the listeners, if you're not like super up on the current stuff, are held to an impossible standard because they are the only public-facing queer people, non-men, in this office. All of those people are trying to give us the content that we want. And I'm hopeful that the corporate interests are starting to change their tune. But it has been such a, I mean, we're talking about decades of effort to get to where we are right now. And that's frustrating because we're not far enough, nearly. But look at this history we just laid out for the most prominent lesbian character at Marvel for many years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bummer. And it's definitely like, even though I think that this the story of Triumph here is a this most recent story was incredible and incredible. Every page of it. It was wonderful. It wasn't even just the uh, Danny and Sean stuff. Not, and not just the Crucible issue. Their issue in Otherworld is astounding. So good. good and just beautiful. 
And I want to say shout outs to Vita for having Sean speak Vietnamese. Yes, because it's always French, right? So it has always been French. And in this, she spoke Vietnamese and it was like natural and fun and normal. It was like a fun moment. And I don't think she's ever done it before. I also want to say that whenever she comes through it, she still has her prosthetic leg. Yes. And I think that that is also really awesome because when we were talking about all of the problems of the earlier story where her body is taken out, you know, it's like there's, she's always losing her bodily autonomy. To me, it was very interesting that whenever she comes back that is something that was so intrinsic to her character she decided this time don't bring me back with both of my legs i want to come back exactly the way i was because i don't want to erase my trauma or erase the things that have happened to me and the prosthetic is part of me now that's the implication she hasn't gone into it but given that so much of i mean it's the very end of the issue right so we haven't had time to go into it but mm -hmm. given that the theme overall of vita's new mutants run so far is what is bodily autonomy right like that is what cosmar's story is about that is what all the stuff with the shadow king is about and i mean obviously the shadow king is a central figure here so it all ties back to sean's initial struggle with the shadow king i just i i have to imagine that she'll talk about it because someone's gonna ask right yeah and also i think that it's just great because so often in comics they just would have blinked that out of existence well because then it's so easy to do it it would be so easy to go up ah, we fixed it and it's like, oh, well, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, like, randoms on Twitter were giving Vidal a shit about this. And they wrote a really good thread about, like, this is ableist bullshit. And, like, there's nothing wrong with Sean deciding to come back the way that she is because she doesn't think there's anything wrong with her. And we drastically need the representation. Yes. Like, it's one of those things, too, where it's like every single time. I mean, we, like, even Oracle had, like, that fix. Well, that's the most egregious. Yeah. Well, that's the real thing is if Charles is going to be walking, which here's the thing. At this point in the history of the X-Men, Charles has been walking more often than not. Yeah. And that was set up before House of X. So mm -hmm. I'm sure people have feelings on that. I, for me, I, I'm so used to him walking because like in the 80s, he was walking in Grant Morrison. He was walking like it's not. I think it's just that it turns on and off whenever it's a convenience. And correct. it's like also something that gets erased so regularly that it's just kind of like, man. Yeah, I'm saying <laughs> if we're going to have Xavier walking, it's yeah. important that we not erase other disabled characters disabilities yeah it makes it especially important also if for her it's especially important right because it's also a character who once again yes the stuff that we were talking about she never got to explore self-acceptance before it was like no i'm gonna drop you in the desert and then you can like this is back. her active decision yeah and i think that there's just something that speaks to self-acceptance in a way that we haven't seen from the character so far and i just appreciate that because it's like that means i mean that whole story arc was setting her up to be able to be happy in life and I think that that's like even just seeing a glimmer of like oh you're going to be a happy character going forward sometimes that's great because even when she is happy it's like there's always things missing in her life and so I just think that like and also once again it's like when is she ever focusing on herself when right like ever I mean it reminds me of that moment in mechanics when they're like about to die and she just starts laughing because she's having fun yeah, she's like, this is great. And Kitty's like, oh, my God, you're laughing. Yeah. You know, then, of course, Kitty ruins it by hitting it and quitting it. But for that shiny moment, <laughs> it's just like Sean's never allowed to be happy. So the idea of Sean 
finding peace at Krakoa with two active decisions. She brings Tran back to life because she wants to. And she keeps the prosthesis because she wants to. Mm -hmm. I love it. Those are both important affirmative choices that she's making. And I really, really like, I just love the way that Vita is writing this character. I love Vita's New Mutants generally. I mean, you know, I have rain problems as always, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to see how this arc goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I felt too. That's just my eternal Wolfsbane dilemma. I'm just sure. Like, no. Well, maybe once again, this will be a, the same arc for Wolfsbane that we just saw for Karma, where we were just like, oh, all of the things we didn't like got addressed, taken care of. Yeah, I mean, I think that basically, like, we need to deal with the rain and elixir thing. We just need to deal with it somehow, and I don't know how. But they communicated early in this run about tear, which is the other thing we have to fix with rain. So I don't know. Listen, all I know is that like I would read Vita write just about anything. So I'm along for the ride. Oh, definitely. Well, I think now is a good time since we're running long as I always I just love chatting with you. It's true. And, you know, there's so much to talk about with these characters. Yeah. But I think now is a good time for us to jump into the listener questions on Xi'an Kuima. Mm. Ramona Kelly writes, hello, fellow gays. Recently, I decided to stand Karma because she's a useless lesbian. And that's very relatable. Mm-hmm. While I recognize that Karma was revealed to be a polyamorous lesbian as a joke, her being poly is an interesting part of her character that I don't think any writer has bothered to explore since. Given that she's probably the most prominent queer poly character at Marvel, do you think that that should be more foregrounded in her character? Also, what are the implications of polyamory on Krakoa? If the mutants are rejecting human society, it surely makes sense to reject heteropatriarchal romance structures, but this hasn't been explored outside of Jean and Scott and Emma and Logan. I'm a big fan of the show and try to listen as soon as I can every week. Gay rights, trans rights, mutant rights, Ramona Hope Kelly. Yeah. P.S. Is Karma a turf? And does she think kink should be at pride? There are correct answers here. (laughs) Oh, well, Karma, I'm going to say, is certainly not a turf. And I do believe that Karma was already pre-gaming kink at pride by kink at Burning Man. So I 100% agree. So no and yes are the answers to that question. Emphatic yes. And uh, I didn't realize that she was considered to be a polyamorous character, but... I wouldn't call her poly because, I mean, we've joked, like, her girlfriends, maybe they are literally her girlfriends, but it seems more to me like they're a couple and she's their friend and maybe the three of them are having sex. And maybe sometimes she's poly and sometimes Maybe she, yeah, I just, like, she mostly seems, though, like, she really does want to be in a relationship. She just keeps... That's true. Like, a a monogamous relationship, I mean. It's just that she, like, keeps choosing unavailable women. Right, right, right. Which, like, speaking as somebody who is essentially monogamous, I'm going to say that that's, like, constantly a crush is the unavailable ones. Um, But, like, also, I think that there's definitely a, I don't know, it's, I wish that there were more polyamorous characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I would 100% always buy Jean Grey. (laughs) It's like poly Cyclops, of course. That is the most genius turn for those characters in a long time. Truly. Um, And there's plenty of characters that are like that. I'm just like, yeah, of course, there would be way more polyamorous people on Krakoa because there would be way more polyamorous people in comics, you know, because we we all know way more polyamorous people than we see in these comics. Yeah. Also, like everyone is gorgeous. It's a superhero comic. Yeah. Ridiculously beautiful. And, you know, we play the field, profound, (laughs) intimate way, like, you know, the connections that are formed and like heat of the battle and like everything. 
I'm just like, I don't know. I think that there would be a lot more polyamorous people. Yeah, there are about 50 thruples I could make just out of the main X-Men teams, like without expanding to all of Krakoa. You know what I mean? I think that Karma is open to experimentation and then has her idea on like a one true love situation. I think that that's fine and whatever, like, but that's kind of the thing too, is I'm like, I, I agree with this question because I do want there to be way more polyamorous characters. And if somebody was just like, you know what, that's what we're going to do with Karma. I'd be like, you know what? Sure. (laughs) I'm going to do it. I think an important thing to remember about Sean is that she's Catholic. Mm-hmm. And not just Catholic, but like very Catholic. And I don't know if she's religious right. anymore, but like that was her context, her upbringing, right? Well, which you'd think you, her and Nightcrawler would talk, right? Like we just, we don't really know anything about it. No, we don't. I don't even think she and Rain ever talked about it particularly. Right. Which is wild. Which is wild. I mean, I guess Rain's Protestant, but like still, you'd think that like Jesus would have come up at some point. <laughs> so Jesus, you're big Jesus. Yeah. Fan. You know, too. me too. Right. The way I read it is, and this is perhaps based on Catholics I've been in relationships with. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, no disrespect to any of them who may be listening. Of course. You know, I adore you. But I dated a Catholic, too, and I think I know where this is going. (laughs) Something that happens to gay Catholics in their 20s in particular is they have a real wild, kinky moment that's like, Attack and dethrone God, basically. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's like that. And it's like, you know, hit me, tie me up, all of that stuff. All of this weird, like, kink that is, like, not kink that's been surrounding me my whole life, you know? Because, like, all of that imagery is always, like, Jesus being spanked or, (laughs) like... Why don't we do some BDSM about it? And then I find that often they do, like, get that out of their system by the time they're 30. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I feel like that, like Burning Man, pink hair, these are my two friends who maybe I'm their third. And I've got some body piercings right now. Like, feels to Mm -hmm. me like that's her breaking away from Catholicism moment. And then I think by the time we see her again in mechanics, she's like mellowed back out. Mm -hmm. She's like, I am into this person. Yeah, she's like, now I want to get married and have babies. Like, that's kind of (laughs) the vibe that I get for her post mechanics so I I think Mm -hmm. she like wants to be actually I don't know if she would want to have kids because she spent so much fucking time raising her siblings but see this is always the question yeah I just adopted a bunch of pets like that was my thing I absolutely could see her just like being a cat lesbian for sure tons of cats right of course but I also could see her being a mom because she she is maternal and nurturing like it is her natural temperament but she's probably i think like i'd be tired of it if i was raising my two siblings who are 10 years younger than me that was my thing my siblings were like two and five years younger than me and by the time i mean even when i was a child i was like i will never have children i already have to babysit (laughs) like i'm not doing it any i'm never gonna i'm also an eldest child with no interest in having children particularly yeah so that's my take on that. In terms of how polyamory like works on Krakoa, I absolutely think everybody should just be like doing experimental stuff on Krakoa. It's a mm-hmm. new world, right? I mean, I actually think that it seems like the next issue, the Hellfire Gala issue of Way of X is going to be sort of about that, about like the sexual dynamics on Krakoa. Mm. Sai has sort of teased that and the solicits sort of seem to be indicating Stacy X appears in the solicit. So like, you know. Stacy X. My queen. She's so good. She's so great. I'm so thrilled to see her that I'm not even mad that she apparently like crucibled off panel 
even though I have like a pitch for a Stacey X story in my Google Docs that now no longer works, but it's fine. Mm. It's fine. I'm so happy that I don't even care. Taking it to the AO3 now. Yep. Someday. (laughs) Alexis Valentin writes, Greetings, Connor and guest. Given that the new mutants were a team of super specific mutations and that most telepathic-based mutants seem to get a secondary power set to have them stand out from others, what do you think would be an interesting secondary power for Karma? I love that she's getting some attention from Vita, thank God, because I think she's a character with seriously untapped potential. Also, what are your thoughts on her pink hair phase? I'm sure this was already covered before you got into the questions. Thanks mm-hmm. for all the amazing content, Alexis. We did, in fact, already discuss that. We think it's Those great. Those three panels, we have uh, talked more about them than anything then, else. Yeah, because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's the gayest thing that happened. Yeah. I uh, would love to see her do like a pink hair moment again, maybe. If she was in the mood. Sure. But, you know, it also is fine to leave that in like, it's, I'm in my, you know, mid twenties trying to figure stuff out moment. Sure. Yeah. In terms of her powers, I don't know. I really like that her power is so specific. I do. I do. I do. I like, I feel like, isn't there sometimes more of manifestation of weapons kind of the same as uh, Psylocke? Does that happen? I think that sometimes it's just like, she just does like blasts now, like Psy blasts. I wouldn't be mad at her doing like telepathy, especially because more telepathy. Yeah. Well, and also like telepathic weapons, like you're saying, because now that Betsy and Kanon's weapons are telekinetic a lot of the time, the like telepathy weapon that isn't solid but can fuck you up is always like a fun trope. Mm-hmm. So her doing stuff like that. I mean, Danny does that with her arrows, right? So they could train. Right. They could like that could be like sexy training time together. Sexy training time. Oh my God. Yeah. I haven't been there since Xena. This is going to be amazing. Yeah, it could be, it could be a moment. I'm just, yep. All right. It's cool. I guess I'll just wait for that. But yeah, I would say it's something like that. More telepathy, a little bit more of ability to use um, alternate mean, like not jumping right into mind control every time <laughs> like, yeah. would be cool. Uh, but I think that they're there, right? Like she's developing it more and more right now than really she ever has. So I hope to see that people who have thought about it longer than I have are going to give her some cool secondary mutations. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, what I would like to see is her, I feel like she should be able to go deeper than most telepaths because of her like very intense possessive power. Yeah. I like the way that the Susan arc ends with that mind link and like, let's share our traumas and she sees everything that Dao saw and Dao sees everything that she saw. And it's like this very intimate exchange. Cause she's taking the feelings with it too. Right. right? Which I don't think all of the telepaths no, do. Right. It's very personal to her. And like, she experiences what they experience. Like, I just feel like she would be a good therapist. Like there's just like yeah. lots of, I, I think there's interesting ways you could take that stuff. I would like to see her doing sort of surgical telepathy type stuff the way that Emma does mm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's my thoughts on that. Casey Welsh writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. First of all, I just want to say I loved the Gene and Rachel episodes. The Rachel episode was actually the first one I listened to. Well, I'm glad Mm. that you're here. 
On to Karma. As far as I know, she's one of only a handful of X-Men with a master's degree. Hooray for library science. I know Alex and Lorna are sort of infamous for their close but no cigar status, but Sean and the many doctorates, Hank, Xavier, Cecilia Reyes, etc., are rare. Does a human higher education even mean much now in Krakoa? After all, it seems that K-12 through has been replaced with a mix of telepathic info dumps and free-range teens. So do degrees matter to mutants? That is, aside from getting to brag that you were actually able to finish your program despite super shenanigans. Until the Phoenix comes to roost on Krakoa, make my Cerebro. It matters, right? Like yeah. for, for Sean, I think it would especially matter because of all of the way that the personality type that Sean is, right? Yes. Like the, she would be so dedicated and proud of graduating, you know? And we even see her graduation, right? We literally see it, which is unusual in one of these stories. So yeah. It's I think that it's just her. something that she worked for and that it helped her have direction in life. And like it kind of helped her kind of know what she wanted to do if she wasn't going to be a superhero. So I think her having life experience away from the X-Men honestly is really important. And yeah, if, you know, however that manifests, but here it manifests as she went to school for a long time. Right. So I think that that's, uh, that's always a good character be. I like it when the characters get to go away for a little while and do things that are X-Men things and then their characters are informed by it going forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that actually her interest in library science it goes back to what I was just saying about the way that her telepathic process seems to kind of involve reading other people's memories mm -hmm. more intimately. Like she sort of reads people like a book, but by the nature of her power also has to reveal her own self. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's a much more immersive thing than it is for a lot of the other telepaths. Yeah, but, that but it is like strength. reading and it is like, yeah, teaching. I think I don't know. I just there's something there that puts her in a different realm. You mm -hmm. know, like I think that that allows her to do a lot of things that a lot of the other telepaths like literally cannot do, even if they are more powerful. Yeah. So I think that there's always something like empathy is a tool, right? Like it's something that actually helps you in life. Like I think a lot of times people think of empathy as being something that is kind of debilitating because it can feel that way sometimes, but it's, you're better when you open yourself up to those experiences. Like you're better off generally speaking as a person, if you can, um, you know, learn to hone your empathy to some degree. Uh, if, if that's your wheelhouse, you know, God knows that people can exist without feeling empathy whatsoever. But um, yeah, I think that that it is such a part as a skill, right? It's its own unique skill. Yeah. Walter R. writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. I'm so excited you're talking about Sean as she's one of my favorites. I've been absolutely loving the Ayala and Rice run so far, and I was pleasantly surprised to see Sean and Danny get Vietnamese dialogue on the page, especially since I had been reading the original New Mutants run where her dialogue is all either English or French. It made me think of how Sean, as a queer disabled Vietnamese woman, sits at many different intersections of real-world oppression. But because she's not a tremendously popular character and mostly is on team books, it seems unlikely that she'll ever get a queer disabled Vietnamese writer who can speak to all those experiences at once. Prove me wrong, Marvel. My question is, when handling legacy characters like Sean, how do you think writers should handle the balance between not wanting to tell other people's stories with representing these aspects of their identity to readers? Is there a balance between including aspects of their identity, like Vietnamese language, without telling a story that centers on the unique experiences of an identity you don't share? Hopefully that question makes sense. Thank you for this great podcast. I think that, you know, when I have writers on, they've sort of spoken to this. Mike Carey just spoke to this with Frenzy last week. All you can do is your best. Yeah. You know, 
and these are ensemble books too so it's like it would be much worse to not have karma on it at all and exactly I think that, that was what a lot of people did right it was to be like i don't have anything to say about you know the disabled vietnamese lesbian right so Right. They, so they just wrote her out because they were nervous. I think that Storm post Claremont ran into this a lot with people afraid of telling stories about Storm. White people who were like afraid yeah. that they would do it badly. And so we just had Storm as like a cipher for like Yeah, 10 years and like or 20 almost of Storm just yeah. not being that important a character, which is crazy because she was the protagonist of the Claremont run, really. It was like yeah. her and Kitty are like the main characters of that book. And you know, a lot of times when we look back on that run, it's like, yeah, there's there's problems for sure. There's but problems, like, but we're, we're still so happy that it happened. Yes. <laughs> and the, like, that's overall. the thing. That's the thing. All you can do is your best. Chris Claremont, I think, did his best. There's a lot of problems with it that we've talked about at times on this podcast, particularly in this episode. But I wouldn't trade in those stories for anything like all told. Like, would I trade in the Shadow King story for Sean? Sure. Sure. But yeah. like, would I give up? The rest of it? No. You know what I mean? Like, there are going to be rough spots in any great work of art, I think. And I don't think there's anything wrong with writing the other, provided that you are not an asshole about it. You know what I like? You have to think. You have to do research. You have to talk to people who've had that experience. And most importantly, and this is what Mike and I talked about last week, you need to be willing to take it on the chin if you're wrong. Yeah, 100%. Like when people criticize you for it, don't double down on it or something. And right. You could even say like, here's what I was going for. If that didn't land, that's my fault. And yeah. just like move on with your life. Very easy to do. And it's important to do because it's something where it's like, otherwise, all of these characters just straight up get written out of these books. That's and we've the seen thing. that happen a thousand times. And that really sucks. So like Annie Nascenti said when she was on this show, like she's embarrassed that she didn't get everything right with Jesse Drake. But it's a really good thing that that character was created. Mm -hmm. And now she's going to get her own story in the Marvel's Voices Pride issue drawn by Sean Basaldua, who is a trans woman. So that's mm -hmm. great. And hopefully the character will become prominent after that like if we we can only hope yeah that a trans woman will get an opportunity to write like a jesse drake miniseries or something right and now we have i mean there are out trans people you know yeah. in comics like in mainstream comics there's no reason why you couldn't have someone like crystal frazier or lila sturgis or max visaggio or somebody write a jesse drake book or a new talent who we haven't met yet yeah yeah, it's not just like one person anymore like it was in like the late 80s, early 90s. It is insane that Marjorie Liu was the first Asian person to write Karma ever. Yes. That's insane. Yeah. And no disabled person, right? You know, it's like we don't... As far I as I know, no physically know. disabled yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like I'm even thinking about before, because like, that's relatively recent. Karma's only been disabled for like 10 years. Right, exactly there were about 30 years of publication in which not a single Asian person had ever written this character. As far as I know, mm -hmm. I could be wrong. There could be a one-off somewhere or something, but certainly no lengthy run with the character at all. Mm -hmm. And even just those 20 issues, even just that arc with her and Susan, Marjorie Liu brings in karma's Asian-ness in a way that never had been done before, except as an aesthetic. Right. You know, having Susan talk about the model minority stuff, having Sean think about Vietnam. 
right on as page as that was yeah. yeah I think that it was very interesting and also it's one of those things where it's like yeah so we just need more of that and then also maybe like if there's always gonna there's always going to be writers that like you know it's like it's that's happening with all of the writers it's like right. they can't write to every single exactly. thing so it's just like you can do what you can and the biggest thing is always to be like does this does this ring true does it seem like something that happens to a person right, right? and like a lot of times you just have that it's hard to walk that line I guess but it's also one of those things where it's like when the sincerity is there it really does show yeah and I think I, I don't think there's anything that anybody should be allowed to write but I think that if you are going to write someone a character who's outside your experience you have a responsibility to be respectful to be thoughtful and again most importantly to be willing to listen to people if you fuck it up mm -hmm. bottom line and assume you are gonna fuck it up because honestly and yeah, just know that you will fuck something up yeah there's gonna be some moment that you didn't think of where you're just like, well, shit, you know, I mean, I can only speak to my own identities, but there are plenty of very well-meaning people who I like who've written gay men or Jewish characters or whatever in situations where I've gone, mm, I don't love this scene or I don't mm -hmm. love this, you know, beat. But I don't think that the run is trash or like that that person should be censured for it but like if i met them i might be like and we were having a conversation i didn't love that part yeah. be like i didn't love that part you know what i mean and i have said that to people before when talking yeah. about things like that and the people i respect are people who said you know what that's fair mm -hmm. or whatever and we just moved on with our like because if you are someone with more privilege than the character in whatever way and you have been given the opportunity and the privilege of writing this character who exists in an ongoing world and means a lot to various people, some of whom share the marginalizations of the character, it's a responsibility that you need to take seriously. That's basically the gist. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we can expect anyone to be perfect, even people who do share the marginalization. You know what I mean? So... Like, it's just a matter of, I think we have to have, like, grace for each other, but also have grace for the people for whom these characters and stories are so personal and mean so much and just understand that, like, we're going to make mistakes sometimes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I feel about art generally. Right. Walt also asked how we feel about her Hellfire Gala outfit. I have, by the time you hear this, the bonus episode with Josh Crenillon going over all the Hellfire Gala outfits will be out on Patreon but while I have you, Sarah, what do you think about her Hellfire Gala look? I like it. I think it's pretty good. I like all of the... Honestly, I haven't hated too many of these outfits. I like hers quite a bit. I like that it visually references the power signature. Mm -hmm. I wish that we could have seen Rod Race do designs for the gala. Because mm -hmm. I, I just, I'm obsessed with his artwork and I just would have liked to see what he came up with. But sure. Uh, but I like it. I like that it shows off the leg. Yeah. I think that's cool. It's a tasteful, like, not in like a really ostentatious way. It feels very her. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I think so. I think that that's it. Like, they all do really click for me as far as like, yeah, I can see that character mm -hmm. wearing that. And that's how I feel about Karma's too. Chiabuka as a Quena writes, hello, a question for your Karma episode. I've always wondered what happened to Sean's little brother and sister. I remember them getting kidnapped during the Claremont run and her having to go look for them, but I can't remember if she ever found them and they don't seem to be living on Krakoa with her. Should I fear the worst? Regards, Chi. 
So she did find them, as we've established. Right. We have not seen them on Krakoa, but they're presumably there because they are mutants. Right. So don't fear the worst, but we don't exactly know what they're up to right now. I'm hoping they'll turn up and be like roughly 13, 14 now and can be friends for Gabby. I think that would be smart. Yeah, and she has to deal with little edgy 13-year-old siblings. Exactly. That don't think that she's that cool anymore. <laughs> exactly. She's like, I have a robot leg. And they're just like, we have Xbox. God, there were other questions about Leung and uh, I'm sorry, but like, you know, we we've answered we've answered that question. There's not there's much not much else to say, say unfortunately. <laughs> like, you know. They have no personality and they are used as essentially the like MacGuffin. Yeah, they're a the hot time. potato that supervillains toss around. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like the way to get karma to do literally anything. Yeah. Orlante Duncan writes, Hey, Connor and Sarah. So excited to tune into another episode featuring Sarah as well as another episode in general. Now, my question is about the kiss or almost kiss between Kate Pride and Sean in Mechanics number five. That panel is typical Claremont queer subtext, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's not 100%. even subtext. It's not even subtext. I mean, she says in the narration, like, I think we're about to kiss and then they don't. Right. And before that, she's like playing with her hair <laughs> yeah. and like they're like leaning across the table at each other. This pod has talked in the past about Kate's romantic relationships with women and the story potential of having it be casually revealed to the readers that Kate dated Rachel in the past rather than having us watch it happen on the page for the first time. What are your thoughts on a revelation that Karma and Kate were dating or fucking in college or in the future if both of them have a sort of reunion? Love the pod. You're doing astonishing work. Similarly, if it was revealed that Karma indeed had many girlfriends or relationships behind the scenes in her past, which ex-women or women of Marvel would you pair her with? Thanks again and have an excellent week. Not Kate, because Kate nope. does not deserve her. They did fuck, and I would be fine with revealing <laughs> that that happened, but Kate does not deserve her and did her dirty, and she should not go back to that well. I want her and Danny to get together now, but I don't think that that's happened in the past. If we were going to retcon something Her and Eliana. In, <laughs> that has potential, actually. I just think that they had a lot of really high-running emotions between... During the Zubwell's New Mutants. That could absolutely have happened. I can just see it having happened and then that just being another secret that they have. Yeah, it's like, I killed a guy and we banged. And honestly, Ilyana will treat you right. So yeah. uh, it, it, at least while you are You've in You've heard the of the soul sword. Now meet the soul scissor. <laughs> I have to assume that Ilyana is like just a very skilled at whatever she sets her mind to. She conquered hell yes. at 13. You know, she's just like a very, she's a planner, you know. And so is Sean. She's very type A. So I think that that would work. I just think that they'd have a great time. And I hope that they did. Who else? I feel like, honestly, like maybe she and Lindsay McCabe fucked in Madripoor. Oh, my God. Could it that feels natural? Lindsay McCabe? Can it be Lindsay? I would be so happy. Sean and Lindsay should absolutely have like a thing in their past. That would be fun. Sean, Lindsay, and Jessica. All of them. Well, sure. I mean, that's, you know. I just, Jessica Drew doesn't. Just doesn't do I'm a Julia Carpenter head and I I love Jessica Drew, I resent the I return also, of Jessica Drew <laughs> I understand why you resent the return also the return kind of was a bummer honestly Jessica Drew is my like Barry Allen oh you know when like they got rid of rough. Wally and brought back 
Barry, I'm like, that's how I feel about mm. Jessica Drew. And it's just hard for me to get through that to appreciate her on her own merits, especially once they gave her Julia's single mom plot. I found that very right. weird. I was like kind of offensive. Yeah, yeah, I was like the whole like the whole interesting thing about Julia Carpenter was that she was a single mom who was a superhero. And you just gave it to Jessica after Jessica took her code name back after being gone. And also years. Jessica totally had like a really had interesting her own thing going personality. On. Like oh, she was a bisexual that cried a lot. <laughs> 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 Remember when Viper was your mom for like two issues and then they retconned that out? Yeah, Remember oh when she God. was herself an evolved spider and then they retconned yes, that Yes, yes. Jessica Drew, I will say, ultimate Jessica Drew is very cool. Not that I'm like an ultimate universe person, but like I love her in this too. I mean, I also love ultimate. Listen, I don't, I don't hate Jessica Drew. I just like I was so annoyed when yeah she came back that I was just like, eh. and then she was the Scroll Queen, and I was like, I don't care. Oh, about I this, know. You know that was such a bummer. Also, it was like yeah, because Bendis wrote like the Spider Man series too, where I was just like. This is just other Jessica Jones. Like, come on, let her do her own thing. He has always denied this, but the rumor was always that Alias was supposed to be about Jessica Drew and they asked him to invent a new character. And that's where Jessica Jones came from and why you have to retcon her into everything. Yeah. And why, like, she and Carol have this retcon friendship, which, by the way, Jessica and Carol also had a retcon friendship because it's not from the original stories. You know what I mean? It's in Avengers Annual 10. It is. But it's like, we're best friends. Are you? When did that happen? You know what I mean? I filled in that story as they were dating again. I'm sure. Like... <laughs> yeah. I, I love that for you. I fully get where you're coming from. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think uh, she and Lindsay McCabe, Carmen Lindsay McCabe, absolutely should have like a torrid Madripoor affair in their backstory. <sighs> that would be fun. That would be fun. Brev Tanner writes, Dear Connor and Sarah, or is it Sarah Connor? I adore the Cerebro podcast. I first discovered the X-Men through an episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends way back in the early 80s. Maybe the origin of Firestar. Then I read the few back issues my brother collected. Karma has always been a supporting character and rarely stays in a series long. It could be for a variety of reasons, but because of that fact, I rarely attach myself emotionally to her. What makes you and Sarah think it'll be different this time? And how can the creators make it so? Secondly, Karma has a rough, to say the least, backstory. Given the current climate in the world, social media, all of that, are those types of origins a relic of the past? Or if not, how can they be moved into a modern context? Maybe something just as impactful, but not as horrific. What are your thoughts? Love the show. Your podcast and the Claremont run have brought me back to the X-Men after a 15-year hiatus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brev. I think it's different this time because the writer cares about karma. Like it was different yeah. with Zab and Marjorie too. It's just that then other people got the book and didn't keep it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that it's different because we already saw Vita do a completely different story with karma than anything we've seen before. Like it already is different, which is why it's going to be different this time is how I feel yeah. about it. It's like completely true to the character and yet refreshed everything took out some of the most annoying parts that never got resolved and then resolved them and kind of set the character up for the future. And mm -hmm. that's why it feels that way is because it just was like a resolution after 40 years of this uh, constant re-traumatizing for this character. Yeah. As for her backstory, I tend to think that rape as a backstory is a really overused i mean i'm not like reinventing the wheel here lots of women have said this obviously critics and and just fans but it's a very cliche way to motivate a female hero that said i think it's important for sexual assault survivors to be represented in fiction 
it is important for it to be represented. We certainly could never retcon it away without right. being the grossest thing ever. When you retcon it out, it's always a bad look. So you can't do that. But in yeah. terms of new characters, I tend to think, like, I'm trying to think of the last prominent character who was sort of introduced with that as, like, their big backstory moment. And I think it was Kate Bishop. It's not something that I think you see as much anymore, but the characters where it is part of their history, I think it's really, really important to maintain it. I thought Marjorie Liu in particular handled it very gracefully. Yeah. In astonishing. And we see it very little. Like, it's always kind of an implied situation. It's never been depicted on panel. Thank God. And that's the thing is, is like, don't do that. But also we were talking earlier at the beginning of this where it's something that once again is linked to one of the great humanitarian crises of yes. the era and certainly even of all time. So I think that it's important. That's what is also messy about tying things to very specific moments in time, though, because it's like, are we keeping it in the public consciousness? Are we acknowledging it or are we kind of exploiting it in our fiction? Right. right. And th those are like kind of constant questions to be asking ourselves, I think. I think that as a female refugee who was raped as a teenager, shot is important to the Marvel Universe because there isn't really anyone else who has that. And like rape as a war crime is, I mean, my aunt actually is an international lawyer specializing in rape as a war crime. And let me tell you, it's everywhere, it's endless, and it's devastating to yeah. entire communities. So... I think that it is important to have that character. I don't think we need to dwell on it or talk about it a lot, but I think that having her make reference to it or just exist as someone who has been through that and who doesn't let it define her and who it shaped, but she's accepted that about her. Like there's just, there's something really powerful about this character as a survivor of trauma and assault and rape. And I think that it's good that we have that character. We can't take it away from her. And we're kind of getting into a place where it's like, okay, she's going to do better. Like she's in this place where like, it doesn't have to come up all of the time. Yeah. Like she has already suffered so much that it's like, we don't, we don't really need to talk about it. Like she brings it up in the Marjorie Lou run because it's like relevant. It's relevant. And it also parallels like the experience that this long lost sister had. Yeah. If she wasn't raped, but like she was exploited in a different way. And that's how they sort of bond in the end is by realizing they were both exploited because of their father's failings. And it's a good story. Yeah. And it's a, it's a story that you don't want to get rid of, too, because that's it. There are stories where people do delve into this stuff where it's like that is uncomfortable and hard to read. And it still is important because this is stuff that happens in the real world. And literally her origin story is based on something that happened to real people, a person like that was a lot of people. There was a ton of people who died during that time. And it was horrific. And people continue to die in that way. And it's just it's bad stuff. But that's like that's it is it is important to see those characters who go through trauma be okay at a certain point in their lives. Because I think that when you go through stuff, that's, I can't speak to the things that happened to karma, but I can talk about the things that happened to myself where I'm just like, 
there's times where you think you're never going to get out of it. Right. And like knowing or feeling that you might be able to, I think is an important thing that fiction can give us. Yeah, I agree. And I will say like, here's my blanket feeling. No man ever needs to invent a female character with rape as a backstory ever again. That's my answer. Men should cut it out. Yeah. But the characters that men created like karma who you can do interesting things with, I don't think we should change, but I don't think men need to create any more characters who are women motivated by sexual violence. Right, because as we say, that hasn't happened a lot in the X universe for a long time. It's also just like in genre in general. Yeah. <laughs> like that's something that has been just done to absolute death. Like mm-hmm. any any hero of a, if it was a woman hero of a 70s movie, you know, it's like the, that's the backstory of every single one, right? So I just think, yeah, yeah, I agree that there's there's an exploitative way to do it for sure. And I would love to see that end. But, you know, it's like as far as should people who have been through hell be able to like write characters who have been through hell? Of course, like, of course, I completely agree. So we kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I think it's worth discussing. Zach Wilson writes, hi, Connor and Sarah. I hope you're both doing well. By the way, Connor, I'm Canadian if you want to do an accent. I thought I'd mention it at the start of the letter. Thank you. That's very thoughtful. <laughs> Let me see what I can do. Sarah, I'm so happy to have you back. I'm not sure if you listen to the pod when you're not on, but I wrote in before to say how much the Rachel episode meant to me. It was really meaningful and validating to hear a boat being satisfied with where you are now <laughs> after going through some shit, even if it isn't necessarily what you may have originally envisioned. So, like... Thanks. Now, karma, kind of. It's more about the state of queer women in X-Comics in general, or queer people at all. The cancellation of X-Factor has left me really gutted. It was my fave title, and the actual queer rep, as well as the promise of more, just made my heart so happy. Speculating about reasons for the cancellation does no one any good, and I know it was probably sales, but man, the paranoid part of me worries that it was canceled because of how queer it was. In general, it seems to be like the X-Office is really all for inclusion of queer stuff, but the Disney and the higher-ups are not, especially in regards to queer women. More talking the talk than walking the walk. I'm not saying I'm not grateful for what we do have, but I still think we should have more. I'm a cis gay guy and we've got comparatively plenty. We need to see more in terms of trans rep and women loving women rep. This question really got away from me. Sorry about that. But what are your feelings on this and especially Sarah's? Thank you both for your time and all of your hard work. Can't wait to order the Zaladane tea. Yes, there is a Cerebro merch store now available at tpublic.com slash users slash Cerebro. Check it out. It's hilarious. Valentine Smith designed an incredible Zaladane shirt for all of you to enjoy. And I I think you should check it out if you are in the mood for a dinosaur sorceress, (laughs) dinosaur sorceress moment. With an incredible sense of style. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, what a queen. Anyway, so what are your thoughts on that generally? I would like to say thank you just from the very beginning. I do listen to this podcast when I'm not on it. And oh, <laughs> I that's think very it's sweet of great. you. Thank you. I um, try. I, I mean, I love the X-Men and I love all of the thoughts and getting character or people who are into these characters, I think is always really fun. And also, I really appreciate that, you know, any part of what I was sharing on the Rachel episode meant something to you. I appreciate that. I am also sad that X Factor got canceled. I I think that you are not wrong to have suspicion around, you know, corporations not doing right by queer characters, particularly, you know, anything that isn't like essentially white gay man, right? Because that's something where it's like we're having to push like stock footage companies to include more. Yeah. 
even there, it's like only very recently that we've seen even that at Marvel. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like one specific body type. And like, there's just, there's so many more things to ask for, you know? And I think that that is, you know, we're all asking for it all of the time, I think. And I believe that by pushing, then that shows that there is a market for it. But honestly, at this point, there kind of is no excuse. We talked, or we have talked, I believe, off of the record many times (laughs) about how we do think that these creators are giving their all and doing what they can, right? So it's like, I don't ever want to be like, I don't think that they're doing enough because I think that they're doing so much more than what we've seen so far, because as you know, we just went through decades of Karma's history in which she does not kiss a girl. Still hasn't. It was the same with uh, North Star, right? Yeah. Like until he was like with Kyle, there was it was like, I'm gay, but I never have a boyfriend. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so I think that, you know, you're not you're not wrong to feel paranoid about it. You're not wrong to feel angry about it. You're not, you know, if you need to take a break from these books sometimes, because God knows I've had to <laughs> like whenever I'm like, I cannot even read another issue of Kate flirting with a woman and then it just being like yeah but she's like still she's still straight so like because I think that these characters you're not even it's like we're not the ones who are making this up like it's on the page right you know? it's like that's the thing is that I feel a lot of times people are like oh so now you want all the characters to be gay and I'm just like Claremont just the gay the ones right yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not the person who wrote these comics I didn't write all of this subtext into them like you can't put this on me um <laughs> I'm just reading the comics that were put in front of me and yeah sometimes you got to fill in stuff but that's just how it is right straight fans do that all the time um, yeah but I just think that yeah i mean sometimes do i leave the entire x line just to go read ao3 for six months yeah of course (laughs) like do what you have to do i mean like i'm i guess like i'm in a place where i and again i think this may just be because i'm like in my 30s and have been in the comics trenches since i was eight right it's not that i'm satisfied with scraps it's that I can see the progress and the change and it feels good to me. I don't think we're where we need to be. But for example, I know that Cyclops and Wolverine are never going to kiss in a Marvel comic. It's not going to happen. Those are intellectual properties owned by corporations and they are individually worth millions and millions of dollars as IP. It's simply not going to happen. I I'm delighted that the writers on these books are hinting as strongly as they can to us that these characters are having sex. I think that's great. To me, that's kind of punk because you're doing it under the auspices of this mega corporation. So, you know, I find myself often pleased with what we manage to get, but that's not me telling you that you have to be satisfied with that. You know what I'm saying? I lived through Xena. Yeah, no, it's like right. Xena was my favorite show. And like, I I mean, I lived through Buffy. They had out queer characters on Who Buffy were not that, allowed like, to kiss me, on camera. They, like, were, they literally weren't even dating. Like, right. you know, it's like, I always would be like, Willow and Tara weren't dating. They were just roommates. I did like the thing where like everybody <laughs> would be like, this is a lesbian couple. And I would watch it and I would be like, no, they're just really good friends. They're just gal pals. Like they literally are not having sex. I can promise you. Um, and then when they revealed <laughs> it, people were shocked. 
exactly yeah and that's the thing and even that in the time everybody was like this is like so forward thinking because we don't have queer characters so having one of the main characters of a tv series that was considered to be really forward thinking at the time right yeah and that was like what not even 20 years ago so i'm just like honestly i don't know i sometimes really am frustrated with them and i'm just like why isn't Rachel out <laughs> like I just get annoyed it's aggravating but at the same time when Leah Williams manages to get a joke in there I like I smile yeah when Betsy and Rachel are clearly flirting on panel I'm pleased with that when Rachel and Kate are clearly flirting on panel I'm pleased with that do I want them to actually go there yes do I have confidence actually that these stories are going somewhere also yes I just don't know what the timeline is because I do think that queer content particularly queer content with established characters is something that creators have to push for a lot harder all of the time yeah and I think it's also something that you have to earn it right like whereas straight characters can just have a one night stand or whatever in a comic book mm -hmm. if you want it's always a bigger it's deal always a production like, to justify the queer content I'm not saying that's right it sucks like it does suck it fucking sucks but I think it's just real and I guess I'm just like at this point a little jaded about it all of these, I guess, too, like a thing that's important to say is, is that all of these creators that we're talking about, say, like Vita Yala, Leah Williams, Teeny Howard, these are all creators that have created independent works that did have openly queer yes. characters. And so it's always important whenever you do get bummed out by the X line, which will happen to you because it happens to me, you know? Because yeah, as this is the gayest the X line has ever been, and it's still not, not as gay, gay as enough. it should be. And we yeah. all agree on that. And like, you know, you listen to this podcast. I think everybody should be gay, except yeah, for 100%. a couple of characters where I'm like this person, like Dazzler is painfully straight. And it's not it's just it's unfortunate. Her terrible burden. It is who she is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's my thing is, is I'm like, just go support their other works. They did a bunch of other stuff. There's queer comics out there. They're just not necessarily always going to be the ones that are from the mainstream. And yeah, it sucks. And it's painful that the mainstream is still just like, I don't know, guys. Like, right. <laughs> it just, that's gross and it sucks. But like a lot of things about the comics industry, it's essentially a monopoly run by two megacorps. So if you're going to be a fan of this material, this genre, and the mainstream companies producing superhero comics, I just think it's about taking the victories where they come. I watched six seasons of Xena where it was never announced that those two were married to each other and they were clearly married. So it's like, this is, I mean, to me, this is almost like a whole new era of a bunch of new queer characters popping in. And like, that's it, like, because, it's like even though we're just like oh this and that it's like oh but like it's embarrassing that there's no like there's almost no trans representation right like that's actually yeah like, worse and gross and long overdue i mean i do think that the thing with x-men is that because it's about a minority experience allegorically that's what it's about i think that representation in the x-men line is very important in a way that you know it's not always as important in other Right, we superhero criticize it more here than we do in like the Justice League, right? right? Because I don't because expect like, the course. Justice League to be queer. I just don't, right. or the Avengers, or any of those things. But I expect that the X Men should be representing people of different races, people with different disabilities, people with different sexualities, people who are from every walk of life, because 
anyone who is marginalized in some way should be able to see themselves in the X-Men. That's the point of the X-Men, right? I think this is the best we've ever had it, and it's not enough, but I'm I'm happy that it's trending in the right direction, is what I would say, I think. Right. And the answer is having queer creators, right? Like, Absolutely. I think having queer and trans creators behind these books Absolutely. is like where we start to be like, okay, because that in and of itself is representation, even if it's not always making it onto the page it's like that in and of itself is like such that is what's important because we're talking about real people exactly lives. Like, i am much more invested in queer women and trans people getting an opportunity to write comics than i am in how explicit the content is on the page big two comics i mean yeah because those are the opportunities that have classically been denied exactly so i think that it's so important so basically, I would just say, like, stay tuned. It seems to me like it, it's going someplace. And I understand the frustration because obviously, if you're an X-Men fan, you've been waiting for 40 years, 50 years for these people to be gay. And they're not yet, which is annoying. 40 years just waiting for Sean to get laid. Just one 40 time. years yeah. waiting for Sean to kiss a woman on panel. Yeah. That's crazy. And it, we shouldn't still be waiting for that. So I completely... Mm hear that and I sympathize and I agree but you know I'm hopeful that this era is going to be different I am hopeful and I, we'll have to wait and see yeah it might be a Charlie Brown in the football situation but it might keep be running up. but I keep, keep running, running up to up. that fucking football <laughs> I will run as many times as they want to put it out in front of me I can't help myself yeah as for the cancellation of X Factor it's a huge bummer I am bummed about yeah. it I think it is really cool that Leah is being given the opportunity to use that cast to write this big event miniseries. So I don't think it was canceled because of the queer characters. Those characters are going to star in The Trial of Magneto. If that paranoia is setting in, I don't think that that is why that book was canceled. But it does make sense that you would not trust a corporation <laughs> that has burned you so many I times. I completely, completely understand why that would be your first thought. Mm -hmm. My read on the situation is that digital sales are still not valued to the extent that they should be because that exactly, book right. sold very well digitally. That's how I read it. Yeah. yeah, I read. I also read it digitally. You know, I think that particularly with books that have queer content, digital is going to be the preferred format because we're like online people. Mm -hmm. Whereas like straight bros just go out and buy venom in physical because they want to you know what i'm saying and because like, they always will feel comfortable at a comic book yes shop. i've been a queer woman going to a comic book shop a lot of times and i have not always felt welcome right <laughs> like, so i think that a big problem is that digital is not valued enough and i do think that with diamond out of the picture for marvel mm -hmm. we may see a change there mm -hmm. because i'll tell you as someone who works in trade publishing penguin random house does care about digital sales yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so we'll see. But that's that's my read on that situation. I don't have any inside info on that, but that's my read. I'm hopeful that if Trial of Magneto does really well, they'll bring it back. Yeah. You know, maybe not as X Factor, but something that it grows out of it. It's clear that the office and that the company has a lot of faith in Leah Williams as a creator. So I have faith that her future is bright, whatever may happen with that book. Krakoa Welcomes asks, what's Karma's OkCupid okay bio? Or does she not have dating <laughs> apps? Is that the problem? 
Oh God, girl, please get a dating app. I mean, I'm not even about online dating, but it might help. Like you got to get away from Krakoa for dating. <laughs> like, or it's like before even like it. Well, at get least get away, away from, from the Xavier. axe men. Yeah. yeah. Just get away from these people. My social circle is mostly queer women. And I feel like there aren't a lot of good dating app options is what I there always are not. hear. So I mean, now, not that there are for gay men either. We just have fucking apps, which is like very yeah. different from a dating app. <laughs> like, yes. You know? Yes. But um, no, I, I think that Sean's problem is that she doesn't put herself out there. She just lurks in these intimate friendships, hoping yeah. that they will become something else. And then oh, they don't. We've all been there. We've oh, all we've been all there. been like there. That's a so gay painful, struggle. Right? I mean, that's just like, we all do that. But she's like 30 now. So it's time yeah. to not do that anymore. Yeah. Like maybe put yourself out there. Um, maybe just say I like you to somebody ever. Like she just needs to say to Danny, listen, can we make out or not? Yeah. What's the deal here? Like, it's just very much a like, let's just ask. Yeah, because the eternal gay struggle of like, I'm in love with my best friend. At a certain point, you have to just be an adult and say, hey, here's where I'm at. Can you meet me halfway? Because if not, I need to like redirect my energy. And I need to take maybe a step away from this, because if I'm the only one who's doing this, then that means that I have changed the dynamic of a friendship to be not a friendship. And so that means that we should take some time apart. Mm -hmm. I want to continue being your friend. I just, once again, as you say, need to redirect. I actually (laughs) would love that exact conversation. I would love to have Sean say, listen, I do this. So I need to know that what's happening right now isn't me doing this again. Yeah. And for Danny to be like, wow. uh, Best offer I've had in ever. I would love Danny to go, I'm sorry I haven't said it. I've been scared to, but yeah, obviously let's make out. Do you remember that barista thing? Remember that barista that was, thing? Because... That was a desperate move on my part to pretend I didn't want to make out with you. So, you know. <laughs> remember when we all got drunk and I made out with Sam? Yeah. Embarrassing, TBH. Remember when I dated Nate Gray? Danny has not <laughs> had a good... I mean, I, I believe that Danny is like bi rather than a lesbian, but like, man. Karma's... Okay, Cupid bio would literally list the books that she likes. She is that kind of gay. And then she would talk about like the prestige dramas she watches. Like, you know, I oh my bet, God. you know, Karma loves Top of the Lake. There's no way that Karma is staying on the market, right? Like, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm going to call this girl. Oh, she's fictional. Okay. Uh, uh, that's unfortunate. Like, she has a <laughs> master's degree and she, she watches Top of the Lake degree. and she loved all and these books. Yeah, and she's so concerned and caring and like, all right. Seems like she's in love with her friend, but I mean. (laughs) But I mean, you know, like fish or cut bait, Danny, because it's like, you know. (laughs) If she had sex with somebody else one time, she'd probably forget about her friend. (laughs) Like, she'd be like, oh, dang, I didn't realize. Oh, you can have sex with people. You don't actually just have to sit around. I haven't had sex with anybody since Lindy McCabe. (laughs) In Madripoor. <laughs> uh, well, except that one time in mechanics, but that was not, it didn't end well. Right. It didn't end well. <sighs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for being my guest. 
<laughs> I have so much fun talking to you always. We've already established now that you're going to come back for a fourth episode this fall. Oh, so. I cannot wait. Yeah. But for now, why don't you plug anything you want to plug? I know that you have an anthology that you're editing coming together for June. So why don't you just like take it away and tell the listeners everything you're up to, where they can follow you online and how they can support your work. Of course. Yeah. So there's this is the time of year when everything's happening. So um, I have a bunch of random short stories that are getting placed in places that are great horror anthologies that I cannot announce yet. But that's the big. That's exciting. Yes, I am very exciting. (laughs) Excited. Sorry, I am very exciting. You Um, are very exciting. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I was fishing for compliments. But um, yeah, so I have uh, Decoded Pride, which is the queer anthology that we do every year. Me, Essie Fleenor, and this year we are joined by the great Monica Estrella Negra. And we chose 30 stories for Pride Month. And so... uh, you know, 30 different queer creators joining us for 30 different speculative fiction stories. One for every single day of June, we drop one story every day of June. And then at the end, you get a PDF. It sometimes takes a few weeks considering the fact that, you know, we're really tired from putting this massive anthology together. I'm doing the art for the uh, anthology as well. So every one of the stories has comes oh, wow. with a piece of art that I'm also doing and (laughs) for uh you know bitches on comics my podcast we're doing all of these queer creators are being interviewed we double it up every single pride we go you know extra hard because I feel like there's so much conversation about like banks at pride and corporate pride cops at pride and I'm just like yeah but there's a lot of like independent queer creators that are doing work and we should support them so that's kind of the biggest thing that we do during June and after that, like you can check out Dakota Pride and Bitches on Comics. Dakota Pride is dakotapride.com, Bitches on Comics, bitchesoncomics.com. And you can listen to it on any of the platforms. I did an episode. It was fun. That's right. You were on it. And we talked about Madeline Pryor, right? And Emma. So that was fun. And I was the guest and I talked a lot and I kept saying, I'm talking a lot. And you were like, we're interviewing you. And please. I was like, oh, right. I forgot that that's how this works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. And then also, I believe we had like tons of There were so many that. technical problems. Like yeah. Essie's mic just kept cutting out. So like they just didn't get to talk mostly. They which, didn't get to talk too much. Yeah, yeah. it was unfortunate. But, uh, but the episode's good. The episode's good. The episode so is I, good. You know, and I would love to come back whenever you guys. Are, yes, you know. we want to have you back too. Um, and also that we're doing a, I'm doing a horror narrative podcast that's in the style of old radio, but with a lot more gays in it. And it's called Tales from the Sapphire Bay Hotel. We just now announced it. It's not out yet. It's not that's but that's our my next big project that's like down the line. That'll Fantastic. be debuting in September. So very exciting. Well, lots of stuff oh and i have like a novella coming out later this year this is all stuff to say find me on twitter because i'll update there regularly it's a slash sarah century you can follow cerebro on twitter and instagram at cerebrocast you can follow me on twitter at dream of organon or on instagram at connor goldsmith you can find all of the episodes at cerebrocast.com the official landing page for the podcast you can also find a link there to the cerebro discord server come join the conversation don't bring any bad vibes you can also find a link there to the patreon patreon.com slash cerebrocast join the house of zaladane for five dollars a month and you will get instant access to the cerebro secret files the bonus episodes three of them should now be up there is a fourth coming soon to every month i Really appreciate all of your support. There is now a merch store open at tpublic.com slash user slash Cerebro. 
I cannot believe how many of you have already bought a Zaladine t-shirt. That touches my soul. <laughs> there's just, there's, a, but there's several designs for you to look at with more to come. I am commissioning some artists and I'm just excited to keep this all rolling. Every new day with this podcast is a surprise and an experience I never anticipated. <laughs> so I'm really just playing it by ear. I was like, how do I make a store? I don't know how to do anything. <laughs> Next week's episode will feature comics creator Steve Fox, who will be on to talk to me about Jean-Paul Bobier, the super speedy North Star first gay hero at Marvel, much like Sean has a fraught history. <laughs> and yeah, we will yeah, yeah. cover every inch of it, baby. <laughs> I'm also taking questions in advance for the other Pride Month characters, which are Richter, Shatterstar, and Bling. So if you have questions about any of those characters, send those in. As always, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I have so much fun talking to you all, and I appreciate your support so much. Until next week, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 